This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, hallmark of this podcast, but today was, man, the, the computer really went above and beyond to make this a special day by, by butchering everything. So we have gone back and forth, and on the off chance that we start to get feedback again on this, me and Mr. Beckenhauer are just going to switch to FaceTime, but... In the meantime, this is apparently working. It's kind of like a nuclear fusion reactor. It's stable, temporarily. <laughs> but how about you introduce yourself, sir? Don't make any false moves. I know, sir. right? Okay, well, I'm John Beckenhauer, and I'm living out here in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm a um, 30-year Army veteran, helicopter pilot, uh, I don't know what else. Grew up on a small farm in Nebraska. Got drafted. Uh, I was 17 years old. Went in, uh, signed up, and volunteered. Then uh, got into the warrant officer program, and then went off to flight school in Vietnam for three years, and then back and served my rest of the time either in uh, active duty or sometime in the Guard and Reserve while I was going to college, and then back on active duty, and then uh, served. In, parts all over the world mm-hmm. uh, in a medevac unit for I flew for 21 years and then uh, the rest of the time I was on a desk pretty much in Washington DC or uh, in Europe mm-hmm. so and you also worked in the in White House communications correct yeah, yeah. after I uh, I retired in 97 I went to work uh, the next month in with uh, a White House communications uh government contractor and I worked in a uh, drug policy office and the situation room. We had employees, we had about uh, 36 employees that worked in the 18 acre area. We mm-hmm. ran the computers there, the uh, secret service radios, the telephone system, the situation room and uh, press conference room, the radio broadcasting, pretty much anything that had to do with communications especially in the secure area our company managed and and provided all the equipment for that so i wonder if because we spoke the and for everybody listening we're doing an episode today and tomorrow tomorrow i believe we're going to do the the white house communications today is going to be more so your uh your experiences and uh stories of piloting um but i thought it was kind of funny because when we were texting i was like is there anything like you can tell me and it was, you gave me some very like some stuff you know you could probably find on Wikipedia. And you're like, if I tell you any more, I'll have to kill you. Yeah. And the thing is, is like that's not an uncommon response from guests I have on this show. Delta Force, CIA, a lot of it really is. It's like Tom, I, I can't, I actually, and I'm like, no, it's cool, we're on the phone. And they're like, you don't understand. There's no hiding. And I'm like, okay, okay, it's so yeah, you're you're sworn that you know yeah. you reveal that stuff, and a lot of it's. You know, it's pretty common knowledge sure. for the most part, but all you got to do is leak one little thing. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one guy I've had on it's is... Not like Hillary that can... I know, right? ...do <laughs> stuff all day long and yeah. go to jail. I'd go yeah. to jail for... Yeah. Oh, I thought C stood for, like, you know, what... And it's like, what? 
it's but yeah you're right and it is it is leaking and if you can't tell this podcast there's no there's no path there's no we don't have a set of bullet points to hit we just start walking so that's where we're gonna go one of the guys i've had on several times dale comstock youngest member ever of delta force he was involved in the um the raid and was it was it panama in the late 80s uh acid gambit to go get cia officer kurt muse but um they talked about and i've also had on mike durant the um the pilot from you know Black Hawk Down guy, Mr. Durant, um, 160th Soar. But reading both their books, they talked about going in and kind of getting ready for, you know, to go in and get Noriega and, you know, do whatever. But they talked about how the entire thing had to be uh, executed kind of, I think they said maybe like 30 minutes earlier than they planned because one guy called home on a payphone. Because he was just, you know, he's one of the lower guys, but he was just read in like an hour before. So he called home to tell his parents, he's like, hey, I think we're about to do something, you know, in case I die, I love you. Which, sure, I get, but of course the government caught it. The, uh, the Whoever, Noriega's guys caught the telephone call. They started alerting all the anti-aircraft, and the whole thing was just like, we got to go now. Yeah. So it's it's very real, right? OPSEC is very real. Yeah. Well, they say loose. What's the old world? Loose lips sink ships. Loose lips sink ships. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, yeah. No, but it's true. And so yeah. But the point is, is so you were like, I'd have to kill you, and it's like I understand. But it's kind of funny because everyone. I always joke that um, that I have some friends in the NSA or the FBI who are watching this podcast because every once in a while I'll have a guest on and it will cut out right at a weird time. <laughs> <laughs> like I had on a guy that did EOD, you know, bomb squad for the Secret Service. And he was like, it's pretty easy to build a bomb. And then from that moment forward, the the, the connection was horrible. It fell a lot, and it was like, oh, of course this is happening. So the whole thing is, yeah, I kind of feel like maybe that's what it was, is they're like, oh, he's about to go on and spill the beans, Mr. Beckenhauer. Yeah. So, I know how interesting it is how you get a hold of the, the people you do get the hold of. You, you've got some pretty good network of system out there to get a hold of talk to some interesting people. Oh, thank you. Sir. <laughs> That's what everybody says. And they always say how to. One of my friends has a podcast who I'd love for you to go on. His name's Don. He has got about 10 times as many people as I do. But I remember he asked me, he was like, how do you get all these people? And I was like, I just email them. But he says his nickname for me is Longreach. He's like, because before I broke 1,000 subscribers, I had on Charlie Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon. And he was like, that is a feat. But yeah, so, but actually, I mean, I had on um, the author of the uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul guy, um, Mark Victor Hansen, yesterday. He wrote a book called Ask. And the whole thing is about how you just have to ask. And I was like, well, I know firsthand that's how this works. For you, I had on Ken Moffat. And I was like, Ken. Do you, you know any in, you know, probably less formal terms? I was like, do you know any cool cats who would come on the show? And he was like, as a matter of fact, I do. Put yeah. me in touch with you. And we've been playing. But let's get, let's just jump on into your story. So I'll save, we'll save White House stuff for tomorrow. You did, you said, was it, was it three tours in Vietnam? Yeah, two, three tours. I did three back to back. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't, that wasn't uncommon yeah. for helicopter pilots. Um you know, you went over there. Most, most tours start over 12 months. Mm-hmm. And you'd go for 12 months. You'd go home for three to five months, get orders. You turn around and came right back. Yeah. And then uh, third tour, same way. Not a, I don't know, maybe only 20% of us did three tours. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I was single at the time, not married, had a, no responsibilities outside of my own family. So, and, I, and my whole goal in life, I, you know, I, since I was seven years old, I wanted to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my ultimate goal was to get into airlines. So uh, I wanted to fly Navy or Air Force, but uh, had to have four year degree. And Army didn't, you didn't, you didn't need that. All you needed was the four year degree. Yeah. Or, or the uh, high school degree. Yeah. So when I got the draft notice, I just, well, let me go down and see if I qualify. I passed the flight physical and I already had a private pilot's license. So they they just said, well, sure, come on over here. And what a deal I got for you. Look yeah. in here, we got an open slot right here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, what I did. Um, I would have gotten taken out of college. I was in college my freshman year and uh, I don't know, maybe I didn't have the grades or something, but anyway, I got the draft notice. And uh, when I signed up, I was able to delay going in until I finished the second semester. So I went in in July of 67, I guess it was. And I went to basic training. All of us go to warrant officer programs. You go to basic training, uh, AIT, and then off to flight school. And um, flight school was five months at Fort Walters, Texas. And then you go off to either Fort Rucker or Fort Hunter, Ligert, um, or what is that? That's in Georgia, I guess, Savannah, mm-hmm. Georgia. I got Fort Rucker. Uh, so half the class went one direction, half went the other. And when my class was about 400 students by then. Uh, uh, helicopters, of course, were really coming of age in 67, 68. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many were over there by then, but it was probably four or 5,000 of them. So that means at least 8,000 pilots in the pipeline, yeah. uh, either going or coming. And so it was almost 99% sure when you graduated, you were gonna go to Vietnam. Yeah. Some some guys had already been over there as a infantry or whatever, artilleryman, come back and joined the uh, fl- uh, flight program and got in as E6s or 7s or whatever. And so several of those got different tours rather than Vietnam. So they'd already served. Uh, if you volunteered, of course, you went. Um, when I got my orders uh, to go to Vietnam, I also got orders to go to an advanced uh, flight program, which was the CH-47. Mm-hmm. Um, Chinooks. And yeah. At that time, uh, warrant officers, W-1s, didn't go to war- uh, flight school. They had just opened that up. Um, you know, they thought it being an advanced aircraft that uh, only second tour people basically got it. You had to have at least a thousand hours to even apply for Chinook school. Well, mm-hmm. I had a grand total of 280, I think, something yeah. like that. Yeah. But they tried this thing where they took the best, you know, the top students out of every class as warrant officers, because they were so short Chinook pilots, uh, most of the Chinook pilots were W-2s, W-3s, and 4s by then, senior guys that didn't want to go back a second tour. You know, those of them had families and they'd served in Korea War already. And we even had one guy that was a World War II pilot that was, uh, he'd actually got out, retired, and went back in, uh, Pabby Dietz. And he, uh, he was he was actually killed in, in Vietnam. So the experienced pilots were, hard to find, but that, you know, there were enough around and they were mostly the, the mentors for us, the younger kids. Yeah. So anyway, I, I finished in the top three of my class. So I was able to get the Chinook class and that wasn't, 
any big deal because I already had a pilot's license when I went in. So I had a big advantage over a lot of the, the number one and the number two guy are both airline pilots already that got drafted. So I'm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they were, they were pretty experienced already. Yeah. So I was very fortunate. I was the only W one that got the Chinook. So, um, I went down and, but it was a six week holdover. I was a snowbird for six weeks after flight school. What, is, what does that mean? Uh, well, they, the school didn't start until six weeks after I'd finished uh, my flight training. Okay. So I had like six weeks of vacation time, basically. Okay. okay. Use up your leave time. Or they put me on duty as a standby medevac pilot, mm-hmm. uh, which means you just went down and sat at the cafeteria and waited till the alarm went off and you'd run out and jump in the left seat with somebody and take off and go pick up somebody on a highway or something. Sure. Well, the first day I went down there to do that, an old W-4 saddled up beside me at the cafeteria and we struck up a conversation and he said, well, you know, you got six weeks to kill. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm just sitting around here waiting, you know. He says, well, we've got a cancellation in the new Cobra school over here. Would you like to go to gunship school? I said, Heck yeah. You know, I'll take that. <laughs> you know? But I didn't want to jeopardize my Chinook class. Okay. And so he arranged it so I would do the Cobra school, which were just brand new aircraft at the time, come out. And then uh, I finished Cobra school and I had two days and then I started Chinook school. So I was really blessed that I had uh, gotten both both training. Not, not many pilots got that. Well, I went from there to, uh, well, I went on leave, I guess, after school. I had two weeks leave and then... Uh, we went over and caught the flight to uh, Vietnam out of Fort Lewis. I got over there in, uh, let's see, it's been in 60, 68, I guess, early 68. And then I was given a choice to fly gunships or fly Chinooks. Uh, the base I was at in Phu Hep was uh, at both. Well, shoot, I wanted to go kill people and blow up things, you know? Yeah. So I said, I'll take the gunships. <laughs> but, <laughs> Again, my whole goal was to get flight time. Yeah. Uh, and I got into gunships, but we'd go down there at 4 o'clock in the morning, pre-flight your aircraft, take off, go out and insert the troops in the field, maybe take fire, maybe not, just shoot up the tree line and get the first troops on the ground. And we'd go back and sit and wait. <laughs> and wait for them to make contact. They didn't make contact. We, we waited to the end of the day, and maybe we go out and bring them back in, or maybe they'd be out there for two or three days or whatever. And then we go out and shoot up the LZ, and they bring them back. So, you know, you put you put in an eighteen-hour day, and you maybe got two to three hours of flying time. That was not working for me. Sure. So I did that for about three months, I guess, and then. Um, that was pretty exciting. Some of the days were, but for the most part, I wasn't getting. I wasn't even the getting 60, time. Yeah, 60 hours of flying time a month. Yeah. yeah. And, what, uh, I what, needed 3,000. So what, I said, uh, I got to get busy here. What, you know? Yeah. What is the, well, what's the armament? Well, I'm sitting there waiting by my guns. Here, here comes these Chinooks flying in and out, flying yeah. in and, and out. Yeah, just, flying, the, flying the troops in, and I'm sitting just, there. Yeah. And, hey, you know. So I went over to, then our, then our unit got orders to move down to Saigon area, three-quarter. And uh, so I ran over to the CEO of the Chinook unit and said, hey, what's the chances, you know, transferring over? And he said, well, heck yeah, you know, we're short pilots over here. So he went, called the personnel, and I, the next day I was over in the Chinook unit. So 
uh, I started flying Chinooks and and right away. I mean, the average the, the average Chinook pilot got uh, a thousand hours over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, gunship pilots got about six to eight hundred hours. Huey pilots got anywhere from fifteen twelve to fifteen hundred hours normally. Huey Huey pilots, I think, flew more than anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so anyway, I I started flying hooks and. Uh, I guess that was about the second week. And when I was flying, when I was flying gunships, I get shot at, but I never got shot up. So uh, you know, I was, you know, I didn't didn't think it was that big a deal. But anyway, the, I get in the Chinook, and Chinook's supposed to be the safest aircraft over there, right? You know, because uh, we fly in last and we fly out first mm-hmm. into the, the LZs and stuff. So. Uh, we're big and we're vulnerable and we're very slow, and so you don't. For everybody slow. listening, the Chinooks is the is the big helicopter with two uh, two uh, yeah two rotors. They're the troop the troop transport, I believe, and yeah. yeah. So right, you'd go in, clear out the LZ, and then the big you know the big slow yeah. one comes in, drops everybody off. Yeah. We could take we could take well if we carried Vietnamese or Koreans, which we did quite a bit. We could fly sixty passengers internally, so Jesus. they could stack them in there. You know, if you had American troops and they're fully loaded, uh, we could guarantee 33, 33 troops on the highest mountain in Vietnam. So, and on the hottest day. So, I mean, most of the time you could stick forty-five or so in there if you had to. We didn't do that very often, but yeah. uh, when we did, it was it was uh, a guarantee that we could usually do it yeah. unless the airplane was really or the bird was really weak for yeah. some reason. Yeah. So I don't know, about the second weekend, we're on a my first big combat assault in the Chinooks. I'll give you a war story. We uh, we were flying into a what's called Happy Valley. It's up by On K. Big combat assault. About forty Hueys and uh, I don't know. There's ten or twelve of us Chinooks. So there was they were in, we were inserting like a thousand troops into five or six LCs up on the valley. Mm-hmm. And they'd made contact up in there. And it was called Happy Valley because of the, the KIEs they were getting were on drugs, uh, North Vietnamese and, and troops. And so, you know, those guys would get high on drugs and and they weren't scared of you at all, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I mean... They'd take you on. So Happy Valley was a badass place as far as flying in and out of it. It was uh, right next, pretty much close to the Cambodian border, so it was easy to feed North Vietnamese troops into it. So on a combat assault, I'm the first Chinook in, uh, but I'm the last, or I'm the first Chinook in, but uh, uh, I follow the last Huey in, and there was probably 15 Hueys ahead of us. We're all lined up maybe in a five-mile trail, and the LZ is just big enough to get a Chinook into, and maybe two Hueys. And the first Huey landed, landed right on top of a booby trap. And I could see him out there and he landed right on the booby trap and he just went up and upside down and crashed right down the side of the mountain on the side of it. So the idea when that happens is the next helicopter lands exactly where he did. Yeah, sure. So it's the safest place. So they got everybody in, all the rest of the Hueys landed and they got the crew out of the other aircraft and then we were, you know, the LZs considered hot yet. So uh, the Chinooks, we just did a slow orbit and came back around. And when uh, I was the first one in, and I was still flying with an IP, I was with Clyde Love at the time, and he he was a second tour Chinook pilot. 
So we we come in and uh, I, I landed the aircraft. That was like you know, I was he was pretty much uh, right there beside me, but he was he was manning the radio. Normally one guy flies, the other guy mans the radios and keeps his eyes out and, and is talking to the crew in the back. So as I landed, uh, we got a rear view mirror that's right up ahead so we can look back mm-hmm. into the back. And I had a load of, a, I don't know, we figured probably about 40 Koreans. We don't really count them. They just load them up and, and you get on and you sure. take off. And I got uh, to look it in my rear view mirror and we weren't there more than two or three seconds. They lower the ramp in the back and the guys start running out the back as fast as you can get them out. Because you don't want to sit in the LC yeah, yeah, very yeah. long because you're very vulnerable to mortar attack then. So they've got it zeroed in. So the third guy, second or third guy, I mean, they, he just lowered the ramp and they started running. I remember seeing that. And one of the troopers stepped right on another, which I found out later was a 105 howitzer round. Uh, booby trap had been exploded. And that thing blew up. I remember seeing the explosion. And uh, the rotor blades cut the aircraft right in half. My, I was, we were sitting right on the air, the cockpit. I was looking straight down the mountain in front of me, which was about a 60 degree slope. My front two wheels were sitting on the mountain, but if, it, if that's what really saved my life, the, the rotor blades cut the aircraft in half and my forward end of the aircraft went rolling down the mountain away from the fire. We had 6,000 pounds of fuel on, but we just refueled, of course. And so we were fully loaded. And I think everybody in the back, we see we went rolling down, knocked me out, and knocked my co-pilot out. When we came to a stop, I mean, I I woke up, you know, 15, 20 seconds later from concussion, and the uh, aircraft was nose down, upside down. It took me a couple seconds to orient. I unbuckled and fell out. I pulled the fire handle or the emergency handle on the aircraft, the door fell off and I, I just rolled out on the ground. As I was rolling out, I looked back to see if my co-pilot was alive. Clyde, he was, uh, I, he was wiggling and I ran around to his side and got his door off and got him out. He'd been unknocked unconscious too. And so we both kind of dazed. We only knew, we knew the only way he was gonna get out of there is to walk back up that mountain to where the LZ, where we'd yeah. landed, cause that's the aircraft yeah. gonna pick us up, would have picked us up there. So we, we, you know, probably 50, 60 yards back up that hill, which about killed you itself, trying to get back up that hill. We got back on the aircraft, we took back off. We jumped on a Huey that was there and, he, and uh, we went back to my uh, base there in on K. And uh, that was on a Sunday morning, probably about eight o'clock when the aircraft happened, when, when the accident happened. And then by noon, Clyde and I were back in another Chinook flying back out on the mission again, <laughs> flying artillery and, and ammunition out there. It's like, okay, another day. Here we go. Just game time, game face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, right? That's like, that's waking up hungover with your friends. And it's like, we're doing it again. Like, we're doing it again. It's. Yeah. Yeah. They brought another aircraft up and said, get going. So that's the way we did it. But, Good Lord. You know, I, was, I was thinking it was a lot safer flying in a Chinook than I would be in a, in a gunship. But it, <laughs> the opposite turned around <laughs> right away. But that was the beginning of my journey. So uh, you said that uh, that mortar went off the booby trap and you said, so the what did it push the back rotor up, and that's what yeah, cut it? Yeah, well, off? it would have brought it up, but the rotor blade, the back, yeah, three rotor blades would have just cut right through the aircraft. Yeah. What happens? Yeah, 
And uh, if there's any kind of a, a rise in the rear end of the aircraft that throws the balance off of those blades, it, it'll automatically cut. Now, sometimes it'll cut the aircraft in two. A lot of times it'll it'll just cut, slice through the, the fuselage. Mm-hmm. And, it, and your forward rotor blade, of course, is turned in the opposite direction. Yeah. So it, it, it wants to pull Yank away from away. whatever the back end is doing. So that's, that's how that uh, went down that day, you know. How 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 far down did it? How far was the drop or the fall or the roll or whatever? Well, I said I was probably forty fifty yards away from down the mountain. You know, I, I don't know how many times it rolled over. I was unconscious at the time, uh, but we, like I said, we ended up upside down yeah. like that, and rotor blades were all gone. Of course, everything had come yeah. apart. What is? But the it was intact yet. So. Is there a near death like experience? Was it just adrenaline, or was you were you really just it was you knocked out and woke up and it was like where am I? Uh, well, it wasn't a near death experience. I mean, you, you don't even think about that. It was yeah. just too fast that yeah. that happened. I mean, when I saw that explosion, I thought, well, that's probably it. You know, I yeah. don't remember a whole lot of that, but I do remember waking up and being worried about my co-pilot. Sure. sure. And then. Uh, once he was okay, then it was, I got to get the heck out of here, you know, because yeah. I don't want to be, my worst fear was getting caught yeah. in the ground by Absolutely. an NBA soldier and being POW. Yeah, you know? tortured. I yeah. saved one bullet in my gun. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> For the last one was going, I did not want to well, be a POW. I had on <laughs> Joe Teddy, who is a, who's a special forces and did a paramilitary work, and he talked about on a, an a escape and evasion, uh, a mission gone wrong. In like the early 2000s in Iraq or something, and yeah, said the guy he was with was a former Delta for Delta Force guy who had been in Mogadishu and yeah. knew when things were going bad. And they were on hour 77 of escape and evade. And he said, uh, he said, count your bullets and put one in your pocket because, like you said, with the V Kong, he's like, hey, like we've they've debriefed, they've showed us the videos of what ISIS does, and they're like, save it for yourself. Yeah. And it's, yeah. yeah. But that's, yeah, no, that's what he said. It's like, you saved one. He was like, there's, you're going to get cooked alive in, in, in hot oil. Like, they're exactly. animals. Yeah. And if, and if you survived all that, you're going to end up in a POW camp. And back then, you know, those guys were up there for years. five, six years in a row. Yeah. And then if you get out of that, I mean, yeah. what, PTSD for the rest of your life? Just, yeah. so yeah, yeah, climb up the mountain. <laughs> Well, I, had, I had my mind made up. Yeah, <laughs> I was not going to go down. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah. And defeat and yeah. get captured. That was a that was a fear I had. That was a, you know a realistic fear. Sure. Yeah. You're out there in it yeah. every day. You're yeah. exposed to it. So, yeah. Uh, the, the good the good thing is that you know that that well I don't know that a lot of good things you know you, you're as a Chinook pilot we you're flying with a very experienced pilot for the first six months or so mm-hmm. so they treat you all the tricks you know you're you're just as worried about killing yourself and the aircraft and your crew by making some stupid mistake you know you can overweigh the aircraft you can have an emergency procedure and do it wrong yeah and uh, screw up something uh, so you had these you had these very experienced pilots that were pulling crap on you all the time. And it, it was nothing at all to reach down and pull an engine off on you. You know, you had two in a Chinook. Just to train and, you? Just to... Oh, yeah. You just... You, you got so used instinctively. Yeah. You did exactly what you had to do. <laughs> and so... So you had a guy who was always messing with you. Yeah. There. You're always on your toes. Yeah. Keep, keep you keep you trained. <laughs> keep you, right? Reflexive. 
<laughs> yanking motors. Is, and you, the fun thing, when you finally got experienced enough yourself, you yeah. became the aircraft commander. And, and you weren't supposed to mess with the guys as an aircraft commander, but as an IP, an instructor pilot, uh, then you, you then you're authorized to pull engines and do all this stuff. Well, you, you get an old W four <laughs> who's not an IP and doesn't want to be one. But yeah. <laughs> he knows his stuff. He's not worried about scaring you a little bit. Yeah, and making you a better pilot for yeah. it. You know, so. Yeah, it's it's being the little brother and then becoming the older brother, right? You're, exactly. you're gonna dish right. it back out, you know? Yeah, yeah. The emergency procedures. I mean, I. I think I had every emergency you could possibly have in a Chinook except for a dual um, failure. hydraulic failure. If you had that, uh, well, I think if you had a dual transmission failure, you're not going to survive that either. But a, a dual hydraulic failure in flight, your controls lock up. It takes, I think it's 6,000 pounds of pressure it takes to move. Yeah. It's cyclic and collective. If that locks up, you're, you're, you're just going to go. So is yeah. there is there any standard operating procedure for that? Is there a, like a, you know, it's like on a plane. The plane can be going 600 miles an hour, and they still tell you to, like, brace yourself. And it's like you're probably going to yeah. be turned to vapor. Okay. But Well, in, in the helicopter emergency book, it says, if unable to maintain control of the aircraft, mm -hmm. exit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> of course. Well, in the helicopter, you don't even carry a parachute. <laughs> Jesus. So, so if unable to maintain <laughs> flight, exit aircraft. Oh, you know? well, you know, what? how silly of me to oversee that. <laughs> Reach it over and kiss it goodbye. That's basically yeah, what so, it was, yeah. yeah. Open, yeah. open. That was, the yeah. Only, that was the only one where it said that. You know, dual, dual uh, fire was a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of a Chinook having both engines on fire. Uh, I got pretty excited. Well, I don't know. You you interviewed Bill Albright. Yes, sir. Uh, when I went in, I don't know. You, you pretty how long ago did you do him? Month ago. Story, you know? month, month ago. That was yeah. He was. Uh, that was one of the more exciting months I had in Vietnam. <laughs> I imagine there was uh, Bill. Uh, he, he about got my ass killed a couple times. <laughs> I, I kind of remind him of that every once in a while whenever I see him, too. As well as you should. It's well as you, yeah, it's for everybody yeah. listening, it's a Bill, uh, yeah. author of uh, Escape from Firebase, Kate. Yeah, he tells that story. Yeah, he got, him, he got himself in a real fix out there. That, uh, and uh, I tell you, you know, the only way he could get support was by helicopters. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it was early October, of, when was that, 69, I guess it was. Uh, our unit uh, was one of four Chinook units, or yeah, four Chinook units in the two core area. And we were the closest one to Bami Tuat. So we ended up doing most of the Bami Tuat missions. And when they decided to set up Bu Prang and the three fire bases around that, our unit was the one that ended up carrying just about all the resupply out there mm -hmm. from Bami Tuat, uh, which was about a 40 minute flight out and 40 minute flight back and so we carried all the supplies there was no roads out there at mm -hmm. all it was all jungle and basically open fields and so the only way you could get resupply out there so for and our unit sent four chinooks out there and we had uh four four aircraft a day mission to fly 12 hours a day so we were flying long hours and flying a lot of stuff 
Yeah. And then sometimes we got some help from some of the other Chinook units. So there was a lot of cargo going out there. Mostly, uh, well, after we got the fire base built, you know, which was a bulldozers and stuff like that to get the fire bases in. And then they sandbags and security and logs and lumber and uh, concertina wire, all just ash and trash junk we took out there. They started setting up those fire bases. And then once the three fire bases, Susan, Ann, and Kate were set up, and uh, Blue Prang was kind of in the middle, and then there was three fire bases around it that supported the. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Boomerang. And LZ Cape was the closest one to the border. It was only... I mean, it wasn't even a mile away, probably from the, the Cambodian border. So they were the first ones that would were going to get hit coming from the troops from the north. So our job, the Chinooks, of course, resupply them anytime they they'd fire artillery all night, and we'd go out there the next day and resupply them with artillery all day long with rounds, and yeah. then they'd fire them at night during the day. And so it was it was artillery and small arms ammo and water and you name it everything they needed had to depend on the chinooks well bill went out there i think what on the 29th or something and uh the day he got there i mean i mean the day before i went in and landed <laughs> sat down on the fire base took a bunch of troops in there sat there on the fire base on the lz for probably a minute unloading, loading stuff up, gotten stuff up. We're not even worried about. It. Nobody yeah. had taken fire. There was nothing. Yeah, around there, pretty secure area. And uh, and then we'd fly either over to Buprang, drop them off, or drop them back to Bambi to it or something. So uh, he started. He went into firebase, and I was like, he he was like a magnet. He dragged. <laughs> it was the same day they they decided they're going to overrun the firebase, and they meaning the North Vietnamese. And I think what the numbers they counted afterwards is something like six thousand yeah. troops were involved. That North Vietnamese troops were involved in that. And Bill had like a hundred and fifty infantry that he was in charge of, and then there was like thirty five to fifty artillery. So, uh, so it's built on base that were firing. The, I think there was three guns on the base, if I remember right. But anyway, they they were constantly running out of ammo. We just resupply, resupply, resupply. Yeah. So the day before, you know, we're always listening to radio. Every time I fly back and forth to Boo Prang, I'd go right by Kate pretty much. And I was listening to Bill, to Hawk, you know, all yeah, I do yeah. is chicken hawk. And uh, he was chattering all the time. And I mean, he was saying he was getting fired. He was getting this and getting that. And I'd fly by at 5,000 feet going by. <laughs> I looked down there and said, oh, the poor sucker. He's, like, <laughs> he's got his gear cut out for him down there. And I'm thinking, you know, he's got 35, 50 people trying to overrun the place. And we had no idea that it was, that yeah, how serious the North Vietnamese were taking that base. So Bill's just a bad luck magnet. Yeah. Oh, he was. I mean, he... <laughs> He, uh, he just, it was the wrong time in the wrong place. <laughs> like, why did you? He, he was the right man in the right place because I don't think it was, if it hadn't been him there, sure. his NCO, that, they'd all been killed. Yeah. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. But he, uh, 
he was calling in, I mean, here for a little captain, he was calling in B-52s. He <laughs> yeah. called in. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. He's just talking to a fac. Yeah. And a fac is the Air Force, uh, the uh, flight operations guy out there, little uh, Cessna Cub, you know, he's just flying out there. He's got radios that can talk to the world. And he can call in F-4s and sure. F-100s. And, actually called in a b-52 strike yeah uh, yeah which was pretty amazing yeah know? yeah he said they had priority <laughs> air support for all of vietnam for that day yeah. yeah yeah i think i don't think there was too much else going on around but it, that was definitely yeah. the hottest spot in town was, so, yeah nothing else was going on because everyone was there <laughs> yeah yeah and uh and the sad thing was i mean they, the uh, the day before which would have been the 30th I guess two gunships were out there mm -hmm. from the from the one fifty fifth out of Bammy to it, and uh, they took. I mean, they were just coming around and shooting and wherever Bill was telling them to, and firing up the place. And again, not realizing how many troops they got down there. Yeah, uh, they took some heavy duty. Uh, well, Bill says it was a thirty seven millimeter mm. quad gun you know that's a heavy duty anti-aircraft gun which i don't think i'd ever went up against one of them before that and uh he they'd shot down uh huey that was what was covering him captain Norrie, he went in i mean he, according to bill he exploded in the sky before he even hit the ground they were they were gone Did so I, and i heard that chatter and of course everybody every helicopter pilot now is alert there's anti-aircraft guns on the ground that you know in the in the air lz gator stay well away from that area except if you get a little phone call around the radio it says hey we need some help in here <laughs> i'm not going there well that's actually exactly where i need you to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where I want you because I'm running out of ammo and I'm running out of water. He, he did. Uh, he did. I, I had resupplied Bupreng all day long that day. Yeah. And was listening to this stuff and I'm watching all these aircraft coming in and blowing up crap out of this place. Yeah. yeah. And as I'm leaving, I, I mean, I always climbed up to 1,500, 1,800 feet. So I'm well away from, from, from uh, ground fire. And I'm, you know, I'm seeing all this smoke and dust and dirt over there. You know, I'm thinking, gee, for damn it, what Bill, the heck is going on? You know, so <laughs> I go, I, I finish carrying all my loads to Bupreng, yeah. And so I fly back to Bami to it, and I'm refueling. I'm going to shut down for the night. And the tower comes up on radio and says, "Hey, freight train one one, you got a tactical nuke call or tac X?" He said, "We're tac X men." This emergency. Oh, I thought you were uh, saying tactical nuke. Yeah, well, not nuke. <laughs> That's what we call them. Now. Oh, I was about to say. I was like, Ooh. that was a tac X. You know, that was a tactical emergency, is what it was. I was going to say, damn and it! If you got that call, you dropped everything and you sure took took orders. Run, yeah. So he, I had, I had to call this frequency, so I called the frequency, and it was the it was the fact, and he says, hey, I got to have you out of here right now because these guys are running out. He says this is big time emergency, and I I want to. I remember my instinct was to reach down, just shut the radio off because I knew this was going to be bad stuff, you know. Oh, yeah, just so I I responded to it. I called the frequency and I called the guy, up and he 
he said, you got to get it. We, we got to get some ammunition into these guys. And I said, well, what's the situation out there? I've been listening to that all day. And he says, well, I think we've got it all calmed down. He says, I don't, I don't think you're going to encounter too much out there. He said, but I'll have, I'll have the gunships covering you when you go in. And I said, well, I appreciate that. So on the way out there, I got our gunners to, I mean, we just don't normally as Chinook door gunners don't have a lot to do because yeah. you know, they don't get to shoot that much because yeah. we're going in after it's safe and we're leaving before it gets hot. So I had them all line up the ammunition all the way down the belts on the floor. I said, if we go in, we're going in hot and, uh, we're going to need probably need as many bullets you can go going in and coming out of there. And so we lined them up and and we went out to Buprang and we picked up um, I was probably nine thousand pounds of ammunition, artillery, and it would have been um, water and small arms ammunition. And uh, it was about a I don't know if I remember right. It was like a five six minute flight from Buprang over to Cape. So I I picked them up and from Buprang and we started toward Cape and I called Hawk up and I said, Hey, I'm inbound. What's your situation there? He says, well, it's pretty calm. We haven't taken anything in the last half an hour. So last half an hour, right? <laughs> he said, yeah, they, they, the, the F 100s, they've been, you know, and the F fours, they've been dropping napalm and everything else out there. And I said, well, yeah, that's, that's, you know, about as safe as it's going to get. Yeah. And, uh, I went back to the fact on the radio and he said, well, I've got four gunships here, uh, put two on each side and we'll escort you in. So I came in low level from the Southwest side of the LZ and it's about four and a half. It's just starting to get dark. So I, I, I come in there as hot as I could fly and I had the co-pilot flying with me and I had a, an experienced co-pilot with me that day. I was the day before I had a brand new guy and, and, uh, I knew if I was going to fly out there in that area, I needed somebody over there and the right that knew it. If I got hit, they could get the aircraft and the crew out of there and knew his way back to where the safety zones were. So, uh, he got in and we, we were, I don't know, we're about 200 yards final and the gunships opened up. I mean, they just sprayed all over in front of us and just if anybody's down there, stupid enough, stick your head out. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, they're dead. So yeah. we went in and I came into a hover and I dropped the sling load and I moved. Well, it was a piggyback. I had water buffalo on the bottom and a ammunition on the top of it. And you always put the lightest load on the bottom so it'll swing back and hold the ammunition so it doesn't come up and hit the belly of the aircraft when you're coming in at an excessive speed. So okay. That's another thing you had to be really careful about. So, so I dropped the put the water trailer down on the ground and then I hovered over and dropped the uh, ammunition on the ground. And then I just sucked in power. And I mean, I climbed out there with every ounce of power that I had and uh, How- didn't, didn't take a single round. I thought, what the heck is the problem here? Bill? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because Bill's a magnet. They're all going at him. They don't care. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, it's not as hot. They must have gotten them all already, you know, so I'm not too good. Well, I'm climbing through about 500 feet and I'm in about a 90 degree bank to the right because I want to look down and see what's going on down there. Yeah. And my door gunner comes on the radio and he says, sir, they just hit that round with a mortar. That load we just dropped the hit with a mortar. So here you got you know six thousand plus pounds of ammunition uh, cooking off in the LZ, <laughs> just blowing up. And of course, he's got no ammo. 
because we just he just got blew up whatever what he had you know lucky that his water and he says this in the book yeah water, yeah yep. water thing fell the water buffalo fell in one of the trenches they dug out yeah and so they had water yeah. otherwise they wouldn't have made it through the next day yeah he's I'm, in his book he says that's yeah. he says he yeah. still remembers yeah that thirst he said it was he said it was inexplicable he said he was more scared of not getting water than he was of dying yeah, he's yeah like, I think I so. Just, so when you come in and you drop it, how how fast can you be? Because I don't. Well, yeah, you're coming in. Well, with a with a normal load, you can get about sixty to eighty knots of ammunition underneath you, as long as there's like a, you know, we always say a forty foot strap. So the load is hanging forty feet below you. Okay. The problem when you got a load that high is you got to come to a dead stop, and then drop down, and let the load off, and then you pickle it from the hook inside. So as you're coming in the LZ, you're probably 60 to 80 knots and you get about, you know, a hundred, 200 yards out or meters out, you start, you flare the yeah. aircraft. So you're slowing the aircraft down the last 30 seconds or so to a complete stop. So you got to like bring a, it in. And if, it, if you go over, I mean, it's real easy for that load to swing underneath you yeah. and you, you go right on by where you want to drop it. Yeah. So you got to get to a complete stop using the belly of the aircraft to flare, basically, when you're doing a high speed approach. But normally you just, you, you come in slow and you, crew chief's in the back and he's telling you how high the load is off the ground he'll tell you you're 50 try to aim to 15 feet above the ground and then he talks you down to the ground with the last 15 feet or so you don't want to drop it because you could break busted open stuff or dent your water bottle your big water buffalo up or yeah. something what you want to be able to do is pick it back up the next day and reuse it so yeah, if you, yeah, damage, yeah. you can't you screw it all up so a good pilot will drop it softly and <laughs> reuse that baby. Touch it down, <laughs> so, yeah. Now, so is there... that, was, that was the idea. And, you know, I, at the first time in there, I didn't, you know, I, I figured we were pretty safe. Yeah. Uh, uh, they'd shot up everything around there, and, I, you know, we probably got all 50 of them, and we were okay, you know. Yeah. Have, have and I doubt, and this is going to be. As it turns out, there's about 3,000 of them down there. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to. And they were dug in pretty deep, so they they hadn't got a whole lot of them. So anyway, I, I take back off and I'm in that steep bank, and we see the load explode down below down there, and it's just dead silence in the in the cockpit. And the gunship pilots come on and they ask me if I was all right, and I said, "Yeah, we're we're fine." But I said, "What's going on down there?" And he says, "Oh, sheep." <laughs> ammunition flying everywhere he said i don't know what's coming in or going out he said but we've got we got a we're a bingo on our fuel we've got to get back and refuel too so we all headed back to Miami to it well on the way back fat comes on and says um can you try that again <laughs> so he's taking fire from the Viet Cong, and now he's kind of taking it from you guys because you're dropping it in there and they're hitting it with mortars and yeah yeah and i'm thinking man i just need to turn this radio off and just go turn home. it off and be like oh, i didn't hear anything i'm sorry but you're thinking well poor bill he's yeah. down there yeah you know, all those guys are sitting there and they're depending on you yeah, yeah. to get in there and of course you're instructed from day one in flight school that you're the your job is to support that ground troop. Yeah, you're the right. You're like you're the guardian angel. You're yeah, you have to exactly. you bring they in the goods. No other help except you. So yeah. you really uh, you 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 have to step up. You know. So it was one of those days where I had to step up. So yeah. we went back and refueled. And he said, "Well, we're going to call in a bunch more. Drop drop a bunch more on here bombs." 
and uh, see if we can't soften up the target a little bit. So we went back and refueled, and I headed back out and and uh, called over to Boo Prang and said, "Have you, you got a road ready?" He said, "No." I said, "We're not ready yet." So I had to stall about thirty minutes, um, just orbiting out there and they called me in and I finally picked up the second load and again we said our prayers because <laughs> we know this time it's going to be super hot coming in there because they're expecting us this time the first time we snuck in on them yeah. and uh second time that wasn't going to happen they heard heard our aircraft coming uh you don't sneak in with a Chinook it's just too much noise yeah know? can you do is there ever anything like um I'm, I'm just thinking of like um like C5s or something, you know, or whatever, pushing it out the back with a big parachute. Is that ever a tactic with, with Chinooks? No? No. Okay. No, that, we never, ever practice that. I think um, you can do it now, I know. Yeah. Uh, you, you put a small drogue chute out and they, mm-hmm. they slide out the back. But basically that's an Air Force mission. Okay. Uh, 130s will do it, yeah. you know, quite often. C5, C17s, they'll do it, but very seldom you ever see a Chinook doing the mission. It's just, you know, our jobs come in, pick stuff up on the ground or drop stuff right where you sure. need it. Sure. Coming out of shoot, you don't know where it's going to land. You know, you get yeah. a pretty good idea, but we're supposed to pinpoint stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, more what our speed is. Well, anyway, second time in, I mean, it's going to get as real as it's going to get. We yeah. knew that. And so uh, I instructed my co-pilot, I said, do you fly the aircraft this time? And or no, I'm going to fly the aircraft this time. He flew it the first time going in. I was going to fly it this time. You, you man the radios, and I'm talking to the crew. And and you, you know, your only focus is as the pilot. You just focus on that LZ, the aircraft, and safety of the crew and getting it in there. He's on the radio. He's talking to the gunship pilots, talking to the to Hawk, and talking to the FAC, and finding out the whole tactical situation. He's in, in charge of that. I shut his radios off because there was so many, so much traffic on there, and I have yeah. to listen to my flight engineers and my door gunners in the back because they're talking me in. Tell, you know, if there's anything that's hazardous or in the way, or I've got a, he's, he's over the guy, our flight engineer, he lays over the top of the hole. The hole is right in the middle of the aircraft on the bottom. That's where the hook is underneath. Mm-hmm. And he, he's in charge of that hook. I mean, I, the, the pilot pickles the hook. He'll tell you when the, the load is on the ground and then you, you have the load. He doesn't pick it and pickle it unless you tell him to. Mm-hmm. He can do it. If there's a problem with the hook, hook doesn't open or something, then mm-hmm. he's, he's in charge of that back there. So we'd, we'd talk about what we're going to do if we get an emergency and one of us is shot or somebody in there. We, you know, we all, we talked all the way through all these emergency things. And, and again, we lined up the ammunition and on the way in, we uh, told talk I'm coming in a different direction this time. They'll know where we're, our path last time. They'll be ready for us there. So we came in from the southwest corner and dropped it on the east side of that LZ, LZ Kate. And that's where the normal pad was. And I said, we're going to shoot for the left side and throw me a smoke out there so I can see how much wind we got coming in there. And by now it's almost completely dark. Yeah. So that was going to help me as far as visibility. We had all the lights off. The gunship pilots came in. I had two Cobras on the right side this time. First time I had four Hueys, uh, Huey gunships, Charlie models. And then the second time I go in, I had two Cobras, which have a lot more firepower. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and and that's where I took most of the fire from was from the right side. And then on the left side, we had the Charlie model gunships and they were from the 92nd Falcons. So I had the Pink Panthers, which were the the call sign for the for the black or for the uh, Cobras and the Falcons were the the black or the, the C model Hueys. Mm-hmm. So for, for you know half a mile out, I popped up over the mountain. I mean, we came in below the ridge line, so you wouldn't have seen us coming or where, which direction we were coming from. And I mean, I've got my ammunition load and water right like this far above the tree. <laughs> I'm just barely skinning. I'm worried about me hooking the yeah. load in the tree and just pulling me down, you know? At least it'd be over quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm right in the middle of them when I do it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Yeah, comes with the territory. Right. Well, I'm going to die someday, right? Exactly. That's that's yeah. It's like, hey man, it's like it goes when it goes. You know, it's like, it's like you got to look around. It's like we're flying above the canopy in Vietnam. Like, you know, we're all going one day. Like, yeah. yeah. Obviously, I say that as a 30 year old with no military experience. It's very easy for me to say that, but. Well, I was 19 at the time, so I mean, it's like, I'm just as crazy. You're, okay, so you're invincible, right? It's impossible to die yeah, at 19. I'm bulletproof and nothing's going to happen yeah, to me. I'll fly through the windshield. I'll, you know, I'll fall I'll a thousand fine, feet. Yeah, know, I'll fall a thousand good. feet. I'll get hit with some AA fire. I'll brush it off. It's I'll all go, good. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. So anyway, short final. Uh, I mean, I'm, he's, like I said, he's on the radios. I'm focused. I'm just looking straight at the LZ in front of me. And all of a sudden, I see these big tracers coming at me from both sides of the LZ. And I mean, these are the size of basketballs, it oh, looks like. good you know, lord. In your mind, that's what you see coming at you. Yeah. Holy smokes. You can, you can, you can swear. Holy, holy shit. Three-second burst. Yeah. They're going right by me. Bam, bam, bam. I hit the, I hear them hit the aircraft, you know. It's like baseball bat. Just blam, blam, blam. And, uh, I see the gunships. They just zeroed in on those big guns, both sides, and they they were done. Yeah. And then all, then all the little tracers started coming at me, you know. And, and now I'm about I'm gonna listen. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. A quarter mile final now and I'm, I'm less than a hundred feet off the ground and I'm, I'm in a big flare now just to get that thing stopped. And we said ahead of time, if we can't hover, we're just going to pickle it. We're just going to get right over the LZ, pickle it, so at least they've got the ammunition on the ground. The box is busted open. The, but, they're yeah. not going to care at the moment. Yeah, just pick it so, up. Yeah. And so it might be better than to spread the ammunition all yeah. over to get it anyway. Yeah. But, and I don't think we had any artillery uh, ammunition then. All we had was the uh, small arms, because I think all their guns had already been destroyed. <laughs> of course. The they had. To, to rewind real quick, so when the big tracers come by and then the gunships take those out, is there like an equal fear with the smaller arms fire, or is it oh, just yeah. kind of... Yeah, you're scared to death anyway. Okay. okay. I, mean, I mean, the 50, 50 cals or 37s, whatever they were, I think there was one was a 50, because Bill said afterwards there was a 
when they were leaving out that night, they had a 50 caliber shooting over their heads. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He talked to last on on Monday. This so a week ago, week ago yesterday, or two, whatever it was, about a week ago, I actually fired a, a full auto Modus. Oh, good for you. Oh yeah. man, that thing was going through the tree line like that thing was going through the tree line like butter. I was like, I'm like, I'm like, oh wow, I can watch the tracer. And the guy was like, yeah, dude, that's going through like thick woods. That's what it's yeah. doing is it's yeah. going through trees. And I was like, yeah. oh, oh. And, you, and you imagine a minigun with six of those barrels shooting six thousand rounds a minute. It just cuts a tree down like yeah. it's Walmart. Yeah, know? just I mean, it's like a scythe. You're just you know, just. It's, <laughs> Very violent, and if there's, well, like I said, there's nothing but hair, teeth, and eyeballs. Anybody gets in front of those you know, hair, it's, I've never heard nothing but hair, teeth, and eyeballs. Good lord! <laughs> yeah, that's just. But anyway, we're short final. I can't hear the radios, but the pilots are from the gunships are screaming at him. Yeah. Abort! 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 You know, they, they want to get the heck out of there. Yeah. Well, I didn't hear that, so I'm just I'm just. <laughs> cruising right on there because I'm going to get that ammo yeah. on the ground. Yeah. I got, I'm going to get in there. Well, I remember beep, 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 beep in my earphone, so I know I got an emergency of some okay. kind because that's, that's yeah, a warning. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not looking at my caution lights yet because i got to get this load on the ground. Well, then I see there's a little light right in front of you that tells you when the hook opens. And I'm, I'm, I'm in an attitude with my nose high, and I see that light come on. I thought, like, what the heck? You know, my first impression was I must have strap must have been hit with a bullet or something and broke the load. And uh, my copa starts yelling at me now, "Abort! Abort! Abort! That's fifty cal down here." He says, "I put I punched I punched the load." And by now, my inter- and just right after that, uh, intercom goes out. Right, so we go running over the LZ, and as Bill said in the book, he says it's the first time he's seen a. U.S. aircraft resupply <laughs> the North Vietnamese. <laughs> oh, yeah. The load, the load hits the side of the hill, and it's a pretty steep yeah. hill. Hit the side of that hill and then just rolled right on down, right into the North Vietnamese hands. Here's all this ammunition. You're going to be they, tried for treason. They can use our ammo. We can't use theirs. And yeah. their, their AK-47 will fire an AMS, uh Really? Yeah, it's just they're they're one caliber above ours. Seven so six two. Fire a smaller caliber round. Okay. We can shoot. So, uh, like they're 50, they have a fifty one caliber. We have a fifty cal uh-huh. round. They the, the NATO round is ours a fifty. They shoot a fifty one. So they can use our ammo, but we can't use theirs. Pretty well, smart. Almost. That's brilliant. Right. Well, then we need fifty two cal. We need fifty two caliber. The M fourteen round is a seven point seven six, and I think the. What's the uh, AK forty seven? Five point five seven. Five 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 and um, we get we get back. I mean, I I my thinking I'm I'm going to just crash in the LZ far away from this thing as I can get. We we'll get out and we'll Run. set up the yeah. and hopefully a Huey will pick us up, get us out of there. Well, the aircraft kept flying, kept flying. I heard this. So we took a 
big hole. We had a big hole, I had a big round through our rotor blade. And that thing was, every time it'd come around, it would whistle. Yeah, whistle. <laughs> you know? So I knew where, you know, and if you take rotor bl- bullets through rotor blades, you got a serious problem because if, if it, rotor blade can disintegrate depending on how bad a hole it is. Uh, the bullet comes through at an angle, it can rip a hole that long, yeah. you know, and yeah. pretty big, and your, your blade can disintegrate. Yeah. Well, Chinook was pretty wide, and the, the main spar that goes down through it was where that bullet went right through. Went right through the main spar of them. Spar? What's, one bullet, what's the spar? One bullet. Uh, well, it's like uh, it's the main frame of okay. the blade. Everything okay. Okay. is the uh, all the weight is on that, that. yeah. So okay. it's like a big, it's not steel. It's probably titanium or something like load main load bearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you got the aileron effect around. Sure. You know, that. So, so it goes through that. You, you you bend that. You bend everything. You know? Oh so Jesus! So we were very fortunate to have gotten out of there. You know, in that that event, and then. Uh, Let's see what happened. We went, we went back, landed, and checked the aircraft out, and thought, well, it'll fly. It'll be okay. We did not want to stay at Buprang for the night because yeah. the aircraft would have been mortared, rocketed. They were hit, getting hit every night. Yes. So I called in. They said, no, it'll fly. Fly to get it out of there because it'll save the aircraft anyway. Yeah. So we flew back to Bambi to it that night. And then uh, I brought a new one out for us the next day, <laughs> right back at it again. <laughs> you know? But during that night, it was that next night then that uh, they e and e'd out of that place. Yeah. So it was there was no more aircraft. We, I mean, nobody was allowed to fly in there, being they had the uh, the thirty seven cal quad thirty yeah. sevens there because they would. No. Is there any is there any like conscious evasion when you're flying? And again, asking as someone with a biology degree that's fired a gun a handful of times in my life, so I have stupid questions. But when you're going in, and it's you know, my first thought goes to something like a fighter jet with like a SAM sight, right? It's you always you know evade flares. When you're going in with a, a CH-47 and you see the AA fire, the tracers, is there any like tactical maneuver, or is it just kind of like you pray that it misses? Yeah, well, if you got if you I, like, I had gunship cover, so okay. I leave it up to them to suppress yeah. the fire. And you got door gunners that can shoot toward sure. whatever firing at you. Sure. In this case, with so many people shooting at it, there wasn't—I mean, they were just coming from everywhere. Yeah. Normally, you just have one or two snipers or something firing at you, or somebody jumps up behind a tree with a AK-47 and shoots a clip at you. you yeah, know, full magazine, and they fire around so you see tracers and then it just disappears and you hopefully your gunner puts him down before you get in there very seldom in a chinook did that happen yeah uh when it did uh you had one or two choices one you don't fly straight into it like you do a gunship or you just you got your am you you make you take evasive action in other words you try to you try you don't you, you turn your belly to the to the thing you're you've just made a bigger target for yeah. him to hit yeah you know so you basically try to to do a pedal turn and, and you get away from the wherever the area it is you're going into yeah it's got the fire going on 99 percent of the time i got hit it was by sniper fire okay uh, just some single guy sitting in a tree hot shots or a, a squad out there somewhere and you surprise them and they just opened up on you uh so you maybe take three or four or five rounds at a time from one burst and then he'd take cover 
you know. Now, but, uh, will will small arms fire? And you'll have to excuse me for continually interrupting you. I've just got a lot of stupid questions. Yeah. Small arms fire now is, again, is it, you know, it's kind of, I think it was Mike Durant said in his book, uh, Big Sky, Little Bullet. Is that, is does it hit you? Does it just kind of tinker? Is it you know tink tink tink, or will will those go through? The can will those will those hit you? Could those hit you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. If they came through the cockpit, of course, all you got is plexiglass in front of you. There's yeah. no bulletproof okay. anything in front of you. Okay. You're sitting on you're sitting on an armored seat. So if if they shot from underneath directly into the seat, they could they bruise your rear end but sure. it wouldn't get you you had plates on both sides of you yeah and then you wore a uh well they were they come up to about right here armrest you'd, you'd slide them down if, if you weren't under taking fire you know if you knew you were going to take some you'd bring them up a little bit so you cross down in behind them you know but you still had your cyclic down here which yeah. this down here below your knees was exposed uh, but you had had your seat. If you got shot from behind in the cockpit, it was the safest place. If you fly over them and they shoot at you from behind, <laughs> the good. pilots were protected uh, from the back because you had a bullet. You sat in a bulletproof yeah. seat that had a uh, plates here sure. and plates on the side. Yeah, okay. So you had that, and then you wore a flak chest plate, okay, which was you know it, it wouldn't stop a fifty, but it would stop a AK forty seven round, okay hurt like heck but it would, you know there's quite a few people pilots took rounds through the, the founder of delta force chest the, yeah. we had a, one of our pilots in our unit where the armor plate on the side he had his chest plate on the bullet if it had been an inch higher an inch lower it would have hit an armor plate but it didn't it went right straight through bounced off the right side went clear up and the bullet came out up here and he lived. He lived no. to talk about it. Yeah, oh, wow. Dave Carringer was his thing. That's like yeah. The... He lived to talk about it. Um, the the guys in the back though, all they had was the bulletproof chest plate that they wore. Now, if you're going into a hot LZ, they say sometimes pull extra chest plates around them. Yeah, and get behind their machine gun, but they they do it. But the guy on the floor laying down over that hole, he he put two or three of them on the floor. Yeah. and then lay on top of them. Yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, if the bullets were coming from underneath, he was fairly safe. I yeah, mean, he he could take a hit. Uh, but you know, of all the pilots, of all the crew members, he was probably the most safe of anybody. Now, would they ever lay down flat? Because I imagine, so you're like yeah, they are. They're they're laid down flat okay. on the floor, yeah. looking down through that hole. Hit your plate, yeah. Because right, because if you're sitting up, it could go through your you know your butt right. or your legs, go right, right. up through your body, right. destroy your organs. With, and with a Chinook, I mean, most of the hits came from the front. Okay. When you're when you're coming in, you're very slow. I mean, you're under ten knots. The last you know 30 seconds or so you're you're really slowed down and as big as that target is and he just step out behind a tree and will nail you you know yeah. and go back in yeah the uh the uh i mean they're i mean i just can't believe you know a good lord was with me absolutely. the whole time i was there so many times where if i'd have been an inch taller or an inch shorter i got nailed right in the head. i mean uh paul who is it uh, and, uh, we had the shortest guy in the unit was five foot two, Dale Tate, and he was just a little squirt, you know. <laughs> but he was uh, very pretty experienced. By the time I got him, 
And uh, my, I got him for his last 25 hours before he became aircraft commander. So I drill him a lot in tactics and all that, make sure he knows his stuff and that and radios and, and he knows all the emergency procedures by himself. And that he, you know, he's safe with the airplane. He knows how to talk to the crew and he knows how to work with a younger pilot that's gonna, I'd sit over there and just act stupid all the time. Yeah. Try to make every mistake that he would get from an of a inexperienced copilot. Yeah. And he his job was to correct me and tell me what I was doing wrong and why I'm doing it that way. So he was going that way. Well, we swapped seats. I was in the right seat. He was in the left seat. So he's he's sitting on the left side, which is where the aircraft commander normally sat. And he's like he's like five foot two. He used to put a four by four block on the pedals with a big inner tube cut that had a rubber, like a big rubber band that would hold the four by four on the pedal so he could reach it. He pulled the seat all the way up. He couldn't reach the pedals because his feet were too short. Jesus. <laughs> <was kind> funny. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. So So anyway he's sitting in there and of course he's got the seat all the way forward. He's got his feet on the pedals. You know he's you know he can barely see up over the windshield hardly. That's been a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for a big, you know, I'm six foot two, so I can sit in there plenty comfortable. And I'd hunch down in there, you know. Yeah. And he he was up there like this, and he could see where the heck he was doing. Yeah. I, you know, we're flying along, fat, dumb, and that, and coming to an LZ one time, bam! That bullet comes right through the windshield, just splits his helmet right right above his head. If I'd have been me sitting there, I mean, I'd have taken it. Probably Dude, right there. Have, you wouldn't you know? have known. No, it just, just have... and it just happened to be his day to sit on that that seat that day and that, he, that was a close did he survive that was a close one ahead you know there's there's lots of times did, where if i'd have been a second sooner or a second later or an inch taller like i said or if i'd have turned left instead of turned right uh been a lot did he survive story for me coming home you know did he survive yeah okay it's so it's okay so it split the helmet okay i was i was like oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah he was fine scared the bejesus yeah 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 him. well it's like it's like paul <laughs> Paul was a bomber, bomb who, whoever the 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 actual author of um, All Quiet on the Western Front. Well, he talked about that with World War One. He was like, it gets to a point where you realize it's like there's nothing you can do to survive. It's it almost seems like fate. He, like he talks about he talks this happened to Hitler in World War One. They would talk about leaving their little dugout to go go to the restroom in the you know behind the tree line and you come back and it's been blown up by an artillery shell and you see your friend's body pieces around and it's just like what if i hadn't gone to the bathroom and it's at a certain point it almost just seems like it's just a toss of the coin yeah you could write books on people that have been in life I've been tempted to just make a whole chapter in books sometimes you should what if you should have just done this would be here you know? yeah i got a good friend of mine who was in 9 11 at the pentagon and he never drinks coffee but that morning he he drank a couple cups of coffee and he had to go to the bathroom <laughs> so he yes. goes down the hallway to go to the bathroom and that that aircraft hit dead center where his desk was <laughs> he comes he actually he came out of the bathroom just as the aircraft hit, and of course the fireball came yeah. rolling down and knocked him to the ground, uh, and he was sixty percent of his body was burned. Sure, yeah. but if it hadn't been, he fell right underneath a sprinkler system, and that—that's a guy you ought to talk to sometime. Do you think you <laughs> I'll can, give you Brian Birdwell's. Do you think you can get him on here? Yeah, I'll get you. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he'd agree to talk to Let's you. Let's do it. That'd be a great guy for you to talk to because he can tell you. Let's do it. Please do. 
if you've ever talked to anybody that was in the Pentagon. I have not. I have not. But uh, he fell on the ground, knocked unconscious, but the sprinkler was right above him and soaked his body. Otherwise, he would have just would have been burnt. Yeah. Well, that's I'm going to write down his I'm going to write down his name and I'm going to text you after this. What's his name? Yeah. Brian Birdwell. Birdwell. Okay. I just want to make a note of it. If you Google him, you'll probably get him. He's written a book about it. Okay. And he's um, a Texas state senator okay. or congressman, I mean. So it'd be the same guy. Okay. Uh, he retired after that, of course, and then uh, uh, he went moved to Texas and he ran for Congress and and uh, he's he's a state legislator. Okay. I think he still is. I haven't yeah. talked to him in a couple of years now, but that's what he was doing. <sighs> that's so anyway. Uh, you know, Vietnam was, I came back from, let's see, been in uh, January 71. Yeah, January 71. So 50 home. years. Yeah, yeah, 50 years this year. What what day? Do you remember what day? No, well, I think it was around the third or the fourth. I missed the football game. The bowl games, you know, ticked me off. <laughs> Damn. I was actually uh, in Australia. I took my last R&R and went to Australia. That's where I met my wife down there on 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 R and R. Oh yeah, but I left there on uh, like the twenty eighth of December. I wanted to get back to to the United States for the bowl game because yeah. my brother lived in Los Angeles, and uh, I called him from Australia. He says, "Well, you get back here." He says, "I got tickets. We'll go to the Rose Bowl parade and we'll go to the game." Yeah. Well, that'd be great. So I get back to Vietnam like the 29th or something of December, and I had to wait like five or six days before I could get a flight out of uh, Cameron Bay to get so I missed I missed it all bastards that, that bastards um yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's I was going to say so let's save the white house communications for uh tomorrow um and this is more wild speculative are you, are you free to keep talking for a little bit sure yeah I got all afternoon <laughs> oh well then I'm going to I'm going to run to the restroom again real quick if you got to go you can go it doesn't matter it's that's yeah, an, that's an, while you're doing it. all right that's another hallmark of this podcast is uh it's technical difficulties and bathroom breaks which you need a piss tube right there in front of you that's what everyone piss. says is I need to get one of those astronaut diapers we'll be right back <laughs> all right <laughs>
And we are back. Um, so where are you physically sitting at? You and you're at your house, I assume, or not? Yes, sir, not I'm in I'm Ocean City, Maryland. Maryland. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very long story. I graduated the University of Georgia in 2013, got into medical school, decided I didn't want to go. Not long after I graduated, I lost my oldest sibling to suicide, and I kind of just went, I think, understandably, I kind of went a little crazy for a couple of years. And uh, my parents live up here. I moved home, try to sort my life out. And December 2019, started this podcast, and uh, it's been about 13 months, actually, 13 months of the day, December 12th, and... Uh, yeah, been doing this, and um, I like where it's going. It's building fast. It's exponential. It's, you know, getting guests early on was difficult, but now it's, you know, shout out to Ken Moffat has got me a ton of guests, but it turns into now when I have people on, I'm just like, hey, if you know anyone interesting, please tell them to come, like anyone, if you can, you know, if you can probably tell, I can just talk to people. So it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're easy to talk to people. Yeah, so it's, I... <laughs> Well, who's your, who is your main audience then? Just people like yourself? Or? I have no idea. Oh, well, really? You don't, yeah. uh, you don't get any response. Uh, I mean, you can look up like demographics on stuff, but even that is only like who enters their inform. So like, let's say like where like the podcast is hosted where it's just audio, for instance, that will tell me that like 80% of my audience is white males in North America between 18 and 45 but that's that's of the that's the that's like the drunk man looking for his glasses under the street light that's only of people who enter their information i have no idea how many people just watch and are watching it anonymously so i don't know it's i just talk to people that i'm interested in and it's yeah there's no specific topic there's no yeah. Whatever so I'm do feeling. you make do you make money through advertising or something or through it or do, how do you right now I I am making some money um yeah I I I I reached out to we're not reached out I made a video asking if anyone wanted to invest in it I was like hey I don't know when this will make money because YouTube you know because my channel is I have an American flag and I have a bunch of veterans on and I talk about things like America being good. YouTube does not like that because they're a bunch of dirty communists. So I figured early on, I was like, I'm probably not going to get ad money through them. But I do know that when I put my mind to things, I succeed. And so I just made a video and I was like, hey, does anyone want to invest in this? Like when I put my mind to things, I do it, whether it's getting into medical school. It's after my brother died, I started a charity to raise money for mental health. I raised like 15000 in a year. It's... So it's basically like, hey, will someone give me some money so I can, you know, cover living expenses because I was working at a liquor store and it's like I could only do so many podcasts when I'm working all the time. Somebody who has the funds took me up on it and then, you know, it's 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 a reasonable amount and they're going to they're going to fund it for three years and uh, see where it goes. So right now, that's where I am. And it's kind of a beautiful thing because now that there's an external source, I don't have to rely on YouTube. Because a lot of YouTube people out there will be like, hey, I want to talk about, you know, the evils yeah. of China or terrorism, but I'm scared of getting my money yanked. Well, I've kind of been able to remove that factor now. So I'm free to talk about whatever I want. And I like that. Where it's going to go, I mean, 
early on i i put a lot a lot I, still, I, I put a lot of work into it to get it going but now it's slowly taking on its own life like i don't entirely know where it's going it seems like I, I very slowly feel like i'm moving into the passenger seat and i just put a cement or a cinder block on the gas pedal and now i'm like let's see where this thing goes <laughs> like it's you know you get you get the interesting people i mean that's your old key to your success probably yeah. is getting yeah topics and topics and people that yeah. uh, people want to listen to and yeah you know, pick up one. So. That's why I figure is just find anyone, like you said, you know, that guy in the Pentagon. I'm like, there's a story right there. Just, yeah. yeah. Well, you're, you're going to have me listening to you all the time. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's, do you, do you know how many people are listening to you then every day? You said you had on YouTube, it's subscribe. So people that like, you know, they'll get a notification when a video comes up. It's 1,850. And, Oh, you're doing good. Yeah, it's yeah. been going up exponentially. It took about nine months to get to 500, and it's taken another three months to almost triple that. So, yeah, like the fire is it start to. Yeah, to yeah, burn. but it's also YouTube. YouTube censors a lot. That's why Joe Rogan left and went to Spotify. So, as I said, are you thinking about jumping ship to to another network? Or I don't think it's a matter of me jumping ship as so much as it's they're getting kicked they're off. They're going <laughs> to kick me off, right? It's it's not yeah, it's not yeah, no, it's not jump out of the helicopter. It's being thrown out of the helicopter, which yeah. is yeah. fine with me because I've I've got it uploaded on other websites, Rumble, BitChute, Vo, Vimeo, all these other video hosting websites. Sure. I have it on external hard drives, multiple locations. My logic is is hey, they'll take me down, but I'll just pop up somewhere else. I'll just play whack-a-mole. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. just going to I'm gonna be a thorn in their side. That's my logic. So, yeah, and I know there are people that like these stories. It's They're interesting stories. They're interesting people, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not every day someone gets to... And I, another thing that I think goes for me is the reason why I don't prepare questions or, you know, send you, like, a set of bullet points beforehand is because... My logic is if you're on a plane or you're in the sauna at the gym or whatever and you just strike up a conversation, you don't have questions prepared. So let's say, just say you and I meet at Walmart and we start talking. Oh, you flew. That's awesome. Helicopters. And we get to, this is what the conversation's like. You have someone that's never been in the military. So I ask stupid questions. I'm like, are you know, do the bullets punch through or whatever? And yeah. I think the majority of my listeners, because I have on such a wide array of guests, they kind of it almost i've been told that it feels like they're vicariously interviewing because it's so simple it's like so what happens next right because you know and so if i have on someone who's an author or a painter or a pilot or delta force i kind of ask the same you know stupid silly questions that i think anyone would ask right because i don't know the first thing i'm 30 years old i have no idea what it's like to fly ch-47s right above the canopy in vietnam so of course i'm like what do you do next like yeah yeah so i just i just try to make it you know i just try to make it real well a lot of people are i don't know i find once you know you're in a conversation and you say well you're a vietnam veteran okay that ends the conversation they're they're one of two things they're scared to talk to you about it because they're going to stir up emotions in you that they don't want to stir up you know or two they just don't give a crap you know and they just they're not they don't care and i'm not even and i'm interested yeah it's because they're dirty they're dirty communists who are ungrateful for this country well either that or they're just ignorant and want to choose to remain that way yeah yeah well out here in nebraska especially you you're a long ways from military or understanding of what that lifestyle is like or what 
you know, they know how to shoot guns and deer around here. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're pretty darn good farmers. Yeah, yeah, they, hey, yeah. It's it's. We well, used to know how to play football, but other than that, it's pretty boring. <laughs> well, that, that's well. You guys have right. Well, you guys are one of the states. You guys have a lot of uh, ICBM silos. Right. Well, we used to. Well, we used to, and I, there's not as many anymore. I, I'm not sure how many's left. They're all out in the western end of the state now. Uh, they used to be all over. Um, yeah. I mean, Omaha and Offutt. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that a, strategic air a, command. Yeah, Curtis LeMay. Fifty, fifty, sixty of them around there at one time. I don't think there's any left there yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, the ones that are left are the ones out in the west end of the state, and they're under Warren Air Force Base out there. You know. Uh, the salt salt agreements cut those down yeah. to I think we like six hundred of them left or something. Yeah, twelve thousand there was at one time. Yeah, you know they can do it. But I remember when I was a kid during uh, when I was in high school, Cuban Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. They had no idea that missile was there, but we're left the farm in the morning driving into town. Right, <laughs> also I looked aside and here's this. Big old missile sitting, <laughs> sitting oh. up right out of the middle of this cornfield. You know, there's this missile site sitting there. We had, we had no idea that thing was there. You know? Oh so my that, God! That's secret, isn't it? and that's the way they were. They were all over the state like that. Well, yeah. It's, when they were on full alert, they yeah. just brought them up out of the silos. They were ready to fire. You know? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why even bother with the whole? Well, that's the reason why they're in the middle of the United States is because it's you want them as far away from naval forces and bombers as possible, and then it's also they put them out there. And and they called it, I think they call the uh, those states, everyone knows them as the flyover states, but there is a kind of more insidious name, and it's the ICBM sponge. Yeah. And it's because to take out, you put them just far enough away from each other that you can't take multiples out with one hit, so you have to fire at least one, and then they're nuclear hardened, so you got to probably fire a couple per silo, so the idea is you create this sponge that they're going to have to fire most of their missiles at to take out. And then you, yeah, and then you realize, you're like, hey, I'm in the ICBM sponge, <laughs> and it's a... Yeah, it, it, it's an actual term. I, for everyone listening, look it up. ICBM sponge. It's. I got a, I got a good friend who's actually he's a lieutenant. On well, there'd be another guy. I don't know if he could tell you very much. That'd be the problem. I'll give you his name, and you can. Please. I'll let him know that you can call him. Uh, I, the last time I talked to him, it's like, well, I can't tell you anything because I have to kill you. I have you. to kill you. Yeah, I get <laughs> it. Yeah. But he actually uh, is a Missile commander leader. of one of those. You know. Like, hey, as a lieutenant, he's a he's in charge of one of those bases. You need to get him. Twelve hours of shifts. And, yeah, uh, five days a week. Yeah, sit do. down there with your keys. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh no. It's um. What's the name of the book? Command and Control by Eric M. Schlosser. That book that goes into the life in a new in a in a missile silo. That stuff is insane. The security okay. tiers. They have pistols down there, and it's like at the very least, if someone comes through those doors, you shoot them. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever talked to a submariner? No. Can you get me a submariner? I can get you a submariner. I'm gonna. Where's my phone? Okay, so I've got. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll make make a list of these guys, and I'll have to look them up. I will. You don't need to say their names if you don't want. You don't need to say their names right now if you don't want to. Um, what? Uh, what? Well, Tristan is the name of the. Uh, let's see, Tristan. What's his last name? So I got Brian Birdwell, nine eleven Pentagon, Texas congressman. Yeah. Tristan, he's the he's the, is that the he, submariner or the he's, missile? Leader? He's the um, uh, missile silo guy. Okay, missile year. 
Miss Alexander, I think it's Alex is what he goes by. He's a medic. Okay. Uh, on board a submarine. And he's been in a, he's like an E9 now. He's pretty senior guy and I think he just did his last uh, submarine uh, mission. He's getting stationed down by Ocean City there somewhere. So oh yeah. It'll be close to you near nearby out there. I need I need these two guys. I'll think of some more too. I think I, please do. Uh, yeah, if you want to talk to a Cobra pilot, I'm pretty good friends yes. with one of those. Yes, I, no, uh, keep, keep spitting out these ideas. With a, a general officer and an Oklahoma National Guard, but he was the uh, he was one of the presidential flight members. What's, uh, what, what's that? Air Force One? Uh, no, Marine Corps. Marine Corps. Marine, so Marine One. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're. Um, Sixty-four. Yeah. Green, green one. You know. Is that, is that someone? Uh, is that someone separate than the Cobra guy, or is that the same guy? Yeah, yeah, different guy. Okay. Different guy. So I've got Brian Birdwell, nine eleven Texas congressman. I've got two Tristan uh, Missileer, three Alex Submariner medic, four Cobra pilot, five Marine Cobra one pilot is uh, Mick. Mick, Mick Gutta. Mick. What was his last name? Gutta. G U T T A U. Okay, he he was uh, involved in Lom Sam Seven Nineteen. So okay. that was his song to wonder. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he and, got he got uh, he got in on some pretty good missions of that. He was the one first chip in. He had to go in and take photographs. <laughs> Not a fun trip to no. do. <laughs> but a great podcast. Not to sound insensitive. That's probably sounds insensitive. You know what I mean? No, I don't think anymore. I don't think all that's been okay. declassified out okay. there. Um, I, yeah, there isn't anything that I can't talk about yeah. in Vietnam anymore. Yeah. We 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 did a lot of stuff with the special forces guys, and you know, across into Cambodia. Yeah, um, those kind of missions where you know you couldn't talk about uh-huh. them at all. That's yeah. all been debunked now. So yeah. Um, and then the guy down in Oklahoma, see his name, Pete Costello. Is that the Marine One guy? Uh, yeah. Okay. C O S T I L O W. C O S T I L O W. Costello. Pete Costello. Okay. He's a guy. I mean, you'll love talking to that boy. He got that Southern drawl, yeah. Texas, Texas, Oklahoma accent. You know. Yeah. <laughs> He's a big OU fan. Yeah. And, uh, he's an Oklahoma graduate. We fly yeah. Marine One. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that lives in your tail. Yeah, he'll, he'll tell you stories, and they say, "Oh, that's all a lie." Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that, is that's a good story, though, don't you think? Is, is that all, man? I I had friends like that when I went to when I lived in South Georgia. They tell you the craziest story. You'd be like, "Oh my god!" And they'd be like, "Yeah, I just made that up." <laughs> yeah. You did. Yeah, that, yeah. That'd be me. Yeah. You dipshit! You're like, oh man, I did have believe anything. Yeah. Believe anything to tell you. But it's true, right? I'm, you know, up to them, I was the city boy. I did have a friend named Grant when I lived in Valdosta, Georgia, and he he used to tell me stories, and I never believed him. He was from Coffee County, which I think had a population of like fifty. And but I remember I went to his house when he. I, I thought he had been telling me lies for two years, and I finally went to his house. Sure enough, he had a pet alligator and a pet deer. The deer had a dog collar on, and the deer's name was, uh, I think, Jesus. And then the alligator had a collar on, and his name was Elvis. You can't make this shit up, dude. You go down there, and he's like, he's like, Jesus, Elvis, get on over here. 
and they come over like they're dogs, the alligator, the deer, and you're like, what am I looking at right now? Like, am I? And it, it, real. Yeah. it was weird because his family owned a deer processing plant. <laughs> so, so you have this big like barn type building just full of like deer hides and and he just chose one and was like, this one's going to live. And I was like, Grant, that's some dark shit, man. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's if you can, you know, you don't want you obviously you don't have to say it right now. In the yeah, podcast. I'll just sit down and I'll send you some phone numbers and yeah. uh, some names and what they do. And you yeah. can kind of pick your pick. And Please do. Yeah. And I'll show them. Just let me call them before you do. Sure. Tell you what you do and what you're up to. So that yeah. They, otherwise, I may not answer the phone if they see you calling. Or they I'll ju- send them your number yeah. so they know your, your number. Or That's gonna- the first time you call me. I thought, I'm. I don't know anybody in that zip code. Yeah, <laughs> that's what that's what Ken does. <laughs> Ken gives me numbers, and normally he's like, "I'll talk to him first. But sometimes he never does. So yeah, I just end up calling someone, and they're like, "Who the hell is this?" And I'm like, "It's yeah. the podcast guy." And they're like, "Who's the podcast guy?" And I'm like, "Damn it, Ken!" <laughs> but so Ken does that to you, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ken's the man. Ken set me up with you, with Don Albrock, uh, with Bill, um, I think a couple others. Ken's the how man. How did you get a hold of Ken? Or how did Ken find you? How did I get a hold of him? Well, through the book, I think. Didn't somebody you said... No, through you, him. You the book or something? So, actually, I had on... This is how these things happen. So, like, early, like first 20 episodes, I had on a guy named Bruce Sackman, who is a New York investigator. He was in charge of all um, medical serial killer investigations in the United States. Doctors that would, they're psychopaths, they would get off on killing people. I saw him, I saw his book back in like January of last year. Emailed him, got him to come on. Way down the road, I was like, do you know any interesting guests? And he sent me a guy named, um, I think it was Mike Vecchioni, and I had on Mike. I was like, Mike, do you any, do you know anybody interesting? And he had, he got me Joaquin Garcia, who was in the FBI. There's a whole 60 Minutes thing on him. He took down one of the mob families in New York. He's the only got, only undercover agent to ever become a made man. Through him, I was like, do you know anybody interesting? And he was like, you know, he, he talks like this. And he's like, Tommy, I know a guy, legitimate war hero. And it was Bill Albrock. So I got Bill. And then I think... I think Bill's like it was some maybe I think Ken helped him make the book and so Ken yeah. maybe yeah. in like a somewhat of a secretarial role. Right. So I had on Bill and then I was like, why don't I have on Ken? Because Ken seems like a cool guy. And so I had on Ken. No, I think Bill was like I think he responded and was like, it was, if I can remember correctly, it's we're on three hundred episodes. So I think he was like talk to Ken and so I, I remember he called me and we're talking and he's asking questions about the podcast and he's like Bill will be a great guest and he's going on and he's going yeah no I did this in Vietnam and it's after like a half hour I was like do you want to come on the podcast and he was like sure so he comes on. And then I was like, do you know any other people? And he was like, yeah, I can get you Bill's brother, Don. And I had Don and Don's going to get me some guys. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, Ken will be like, hey, I've got another idea. And he'll always say these kind of nonchalantly. He'll be like, do you want to get like a three tour Vietnam pilot? And I was like, yes. Why did you not tell me this earlier? So he sent me your number. And this is how it happens. Is it just to a point where, yeah, I don't even remember where it begins. I'm like, oh, yeah. But there are these long branches of guests of guests of guests to the point where the last one doesn't know the first one. 
but that's how it and i just have mm-hmm. them on and i just i like to hear interesting stories i like to because in a way it's it's um it's archiving them right it's on video it's on hard drives in multiple locations they're saved online they're saved offline they're stories of people that might not otherwise get out right because if you're going for like a 60 minutes interview you're only going to get so many guys, right? You're going to get like the guy that killed bin Laden. You're going to get, you know, the undercover mob guy. Great stories. But those are just, those are a sliver of of all the insane stories out there. So you come on here, you just tell a story. Like that story is now like immortalized and it's, it exists now for people to look at. And I kind of like that. Yeah. Well, he's a distant contact of mine, but I think I've got his phone number. Hadn't talked to him in a couple of years. You know who Chris Ponto is? Benghazi. Benghazi. I do. I can give you his phone number. Uh, I went to a book signing of his once, and we had a pretty good conversation. And I tried to get him to get interested in LZ Kate because uh-huh. he knew the movie, he knew movie contacts there. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, oh, he tried a few things, but we haven't heard from him since yeah. then. So yeah, it, but I got his phone number. That could work. That could you work. Call him up. He'd have you some pretty good stories. Hell yeah, he he's, would be. He's. Uh, I don't know if he's still working as a contractor or not anymore, though. He's. He's. Uh, I know he's. You see him advertising stuff on TV mm-hmm. every now and then. He's um, mostly to do with weapons and concealed carry permits and. Yeah. Uh, he's even advertising this food now for for Patriots or something. Mm-hmm. I think. So he, he's out in the advertising world trying to make money now, I think. But he lives right down here in Omaha. So. Yeah. Well, what I tell everyone that comes on is everyone that has a book or a, or a page or a product, to me, it's it's an exchange. I'm like, come on here. You give me content. People like to watch. In exchange, I'm like, I always I say it I say it in every podcast. I'm like, it'll be in the description and sticky in the top comment. So in the comment section, it's stuck at the top. I put their book or their website or whatever to me. And, you know, I don't have a huge audience, but I figure that is the that is my capital. That's what I can give back so I can drive a little traffic your way. And God willing, as the podcast gets to millions of followers, well, then that will be my swinging. You know, that's what I can that that will be my force. And. You know, it's, yeah, so, I mean, that's why I pitch to people. I'm like, if you have a product, you can plug it. I don't know how many people will go there, but some people will. Yeah, I figured. I wish I could have made money talking, but <laughs> I had to work for a living. You yeah. Know? I just, <laughs> yeah. I look at Rush Limbaugh, you know, and that guy, you know, all he does is talk, but he does research, and he's got his niche there, main. Yeah. He's got 40 million followers. Yeah. I mean, if you just start talking, it's... You should go back and look at Joe Rogan's first episode. episode Joe Rogan. Joe yeah. Rogan. How do you spell his Rogan? Rogan R O G A N. You know, he's the biggest podcast in the world. Oh heck yeah! Yeah, oh, yeah, Joe Rogan. Know. Yeah, if you go back and look at his first episode, it's him in a basement with his friend, and they're yeah. just like, "Yeah, we're just having fun with this thing." And then you That's look right. at it now, and it's like he's talking to Elon Musk. Or, you know, Ed Snowden or whoever. He's interviewing presidential candidates. And it's... He got the audience for it. Well, it's because he just kept doing... He kept doing episodes. And I, I truly believe if you just... One thing that keeps helping me is... um is a, is a Warren Buffett quote. And it's... Despite 
it's despite effort and energy, some things just take time. You can't get a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. It just takes nine months. And that's that's kind of what my logic is, is early on, I was like, how come it's not growing faster? And I remember reading that quote, probably of like March of last year. And I was like, some things just take time. It just takes time. How much equipment do you own then? I mean, you got an office, of course, you're just using a room in your house, I suppose, but you got a, what, a laptop that you use or a PC, and then yep. you got servers that you load this stuff up on? Or So it's a, this is a MacBook, and it, 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 it's been growing and growing and growing. So it's a MacBook. There's a, a microphone right here. This is actually the last episode with this microphone because my new one just got in the mail. Um, it's You can't see behind this. There's a bunch of hard drives that I load everything off to immediately um i've got fans to cool down the laptop when it's processing i've got a big tv right here what i do to my research is i have a tv i have video games i put on video games i mute it and then i listen to audiobooks or documentaries so it's kind of you know it's like playing solitaire or something it's just something to do i'm not paying attention so sometimes flying around helicopters but i'll just turn on whatever i'm interested in right now i'm listening to a history of general smedley butler in 1933 who's the most decorated marine of all time and i just i put it on and i'll just sit here for a couple hours just learning about him and maybe i you know a lot of times i'll be like that's an interesting topic i'll find the author try to get him on um i have just on Christmas, my little brother, shout out to my little brother, he got me some, like, lights pointing down so the lighting's better. Um, my parents bought me a, a, a camera. The camera quality is it's way up there now. Um, so the, the equipment is it's growing and growing. I put some black curtains on either side of the flag. Um, you can't see it, but just, like, within the last week, you know those... Um, in a lot of like recording studios, they put those like sound absorbing mats on the walls oh, yeah. they, they, to yeah. deflect reflective noise and stuff. Those are really expensive. It can cost several thousand dollars to do a room. And I was like, I don't have that money. Um, a guy I had on here, Roger Williams, who's my favorite author, he told me he's like, you know, he's a physicist and an engineer. And he was like, dude, just get some moving blankets. It has like the same absorption. So instead of several thousand dollars, I spent sixty dollars and I bought 12 industrial sized black moving blankets. And so I pulled around some old bureaus, a couple tripods and you can't see it right now, but I have this like semicircle of sound absorption and it looks, I mean, I always joke if like the FBI came in here, I'd probably be arrested on suspicion of building bombs because it's just, there's lights and wires and beeping shit and it's, but it's <laughs> even, I mean, even this chair, you know, this, this, I did 50 episodes in a, in a rocking chair that was like my great grandma. And it was like, I think I was like breaking my back. The, the chair, the rocking chair is, it's over in the corner. It's legitimately from like World War One, And I was like, my back is hurting. So, so yeah. So to answer your question, a lot of little things have kind of snowballed. And um, I mean, like I said, after this new microphone, I've got a microphone stand. Um after this, the next big one will probably be um, probably an actual like a desktop computer because even now this camera it can record in 4K, but it's only recording in 1080p because the laptop just can't handle it. So it's always, you know, reinvesting and trying to increase the quality. A big one is just, um, I mean, a big one is the ability to like not have to go work at the liquor store anymore, so I can put time into sending emails because. 
for every guest you get, I'm not kidding when I say there's there's it the the, the percentage is getting better, but I used to call it the 95% ghost rate because you'd send 100 emails, 95 people wouldn't respond to you, 5 would, 4 would say no, 1 would say sure. That takes a lot of time because oh, yeah. it's not just copying and pasting emails. I found another and cut me off anytime if I'm just boring you. But no, 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 yeah. no, very interesting. So another I've kind of made my own law. I call it Tommy's law. And it's the easier it is to find someone's email, the harder it is to get them on the podcast. No kidding. Eh? Well, what's the easiest, right? Whitehouse.gov. Write a message to the president, which I tried. Didn't work, right? Yeah. I sent emails to General Mattis, to George Bush. You know, I got formal rejections. That was cool. But if you take some time and let's say an author and you're like, I want to get that guy on here. If you, Sometimes you have to set aside a day, right? And you, this is what I'm doing today. And you just, you kind of go hunting. You find them anywhere. You find an old website, find a, you know, an old PayPal account. Did he make a post somewhere? And you can kind of like <laughs> back engineer it until finally you can find. And if you can find their email and it was difficult to find, if you can find it, it's almost guaranteed you'll get a response because it's yeah. like a personal email. Um, so that's a huge piece of it. It's not it's not equipment, but it is a cost in that uh, because I do have someone, you know, funding this podcast now, I can take five hours to go find a guest. So that's... And you got to read his book too if he's a book author, huh? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, and you know, and, if, and then that is, you know, if I'm going to have a guest on, I, I read their book through and through. I mean, I treat it like, a, you know, I treat, a, I treat it like a college course, like I'm trying to get into medical school. I, I give it my all. I listen to their book a lot of times, multiple times, and um, really try to understand it and, you know, have some good questions. All of those things take time. So yeah. it may be an hour-long podcast, but some of the authors that have been on here, I mean, I mean, it can be two weeks of preparation. So it's... I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I have no idea. You know, I would I didn't even know what a podcast was until probably three years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I stumble on to, to one I listen to pretty regular, and uh, you know, I, it's like I have no idea what kind of equipment it takes or what kind of electronics it takes or what you know how much technical knowledge you got to have to yeah. do any of this stuff. Oh yeah. To me, it looked like it's something would be a real fun job because you just. Talk. talk to really interesting people and i yeah. said what's behind it is like you said you're doing a lot of research and yeah. preparation for each one of them interviews yeah. to get a good, to get a good interview out yeah of not to mention you got to have the personality to be able to just get the best out of people well, yeah you got to be able to turn it on yeah. thank you but yeah i mean that's another thing is you gotta and again it doesn't sound like much but i mean you can't be coming off a night with like inadequate sleep. If you're cranky and foggy, that exactly. so you got to be well rested. I exercise before it. I meditate before it. So I mean, really, in our podcast, regardless of whether or not they're an author, full night sleep, gym, meditation. I mean, that's like eleven hours of prep right there. Just right. to you got to right. be up and ready to go, and you got to be, you know, you have to be there a hundred percent. Because it's to me, it's more of like a respect thing than anything. It's like you're giving me the time of day, you know. I'm gonna yeah. come on here and try to be like the best 
host I can be. Now, granted, last night I texted you at like three in the morning. I was like, can we push it back an hour? So, you know, sometimes that happens. But get to sleep. I don't know. Yeah. He's ever going to get on. Either. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. Keep... I'm retired. I can pretty much get on. Anytime, yeah. You know? you, yeah. You've got a living you got to make. But uh, yeah, you've done a good good job. Well, what what is the uh, I mean, you get like when you get all done, do you edit all of it then and then just so, put on an hour or something or what do you do? Yeah. So I take it and there's there's a it's a couple of steps. The first thing I do is I compress the video from. So it's because I screen record on the laptop and to, but to go back to what you said, you know, the technical knowledge, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm technologically, <laughs> I am technologically retarded. I mean, that is, I, so when people ask me, what do you do? I'm like, dude, I am learning this in real time. Like, so you can go back to earlier episodes. I don't know what I'm doing. It's, you know, learning about sound reflection and lighting. And so I'm making it up as I go, but, um, editing, I I know that if I make it a big um, a big process and responsibility that I'm going to go in and edit for hours, then I know I won't stick with it. I'll get bored and I'll stop doing it. So what I do is I take the video, I compress it to 1080p. So that takes like 30 minutes. You just got to wait. You take that. I put it in iMovie. It's the free software that comes with the laptop. And it's just got like a little wand, just like a picture where you can yeah. I just click it, and what that does is it, it kind of makes the audio match because I'm right here, so my audio is louder. You're a guest. It's coming through the speakers, and it kind of does that. It does something with the color. It crops it a little bit. I export that. That maybe takes another half hour to an hour, and then I take that, and I upload it to YouTube, BitChute, and Rumble, and then I upload the audio to Anchor, which hosts it on Spotify. And I, you know, I put the links on like Facebook and Instagram and yeah. And it's, and then I offload it onto hard drives. I've got hard drives in a fireproof safe. Like once a week I put them off on there just so it's saved. Mm-hmm. And, um, but aside from like editing, I. It's like you go to your bathroom breaks, you cut them out, don't you? <laughs> no, most of the time I don't. I used to, but oh, you na- don't? Na- oh. now I just, now I just like, I'm like, you know what? Let's really make it a real experience. Bathroom breaks are a real part of life. So it's whatever. Um, I probably should, and maybe I will one day, but um, the way I look at it is I want it to be as like real as possible. So like when people watch the podcast and, you know, it's like, and we're recording, they're seeing me talk to the person for the first time. I mean, granted, we might talk for a minute before we start recording, but it's, you're seeing it as we go. It's like, hi, I'm Tommy. And it's just like, we just roll as we go. And then it wraps up and it's like, have a good one. And then it, you know, so that's what I try to do is I just try to make it as natural as possible and then upload it. And it takes a while to upload, but um, yeah, it's a- Well, do you ever bring a guest into your room there? And then just talk to them back? I actually never, I actually never have. and. Honestly, it, it it sounds bad, but I think two microphones, two, double everything. Like yeah, yeah. Probably. Well, so not you got a producer and a director then too. Probably. Yeah, and keep to, it simple. Yeah, to me, I look at it as like this: is <laughs> by having a studio where you brought people in, I think that would limit the, the your reach of guests because if you're yeah. Joe Rogan and you have the money to fly out whoever, like that's fine, but you have to remember if you're flying someone out you that you have to assume that that person has the luxury to take a day off work or to use a day of their vacation to come away from their family 
when I do this, it's just, it's, you know, I'm in your house and then it's over and you're in your house. And then the other thing I look at is I remember going to medical school interviews in 2013. You got to go to the airport. You got to go through security. You fly out to the city. You get to your hotel. You change. You try to calm down, get a good night's sleep, wake up early, take a cab to the place. And then you got to put on a suit and tie and you're sitting there in a room and you're nervous. You're not in your hometown. You don't know where you are. You're all discombobulated. And you're like, I want to be a doctor because and then you leave and you got to fly back home. You got to come. And it's this long 72 hour process for 15 minutes face to face. And you get the worst out of people because they're so tired and stressed and jet lagged that I think to, and you don't get the job. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and that's what happens. Is more times than not, you, you you get a you know thanks but no thanks. So I figure by kind of you know beaming into your house, I get the most relaxed version of people. You're in your chair. You're on your computer. You know you can go to your bathroom. It's and then as soon as it's over teleportation you're in your house so yeah. you know it's, the bar. yeah yeah exactly you go do whatever you're home you know the joke i always make is you know you don't have to wear pants who knows is it you know who are we wearing pants nobody knows that's the, that's the surprise you know it's where'd you get shirt yeah what <laughs> where'd you get your nassau shirt NASA you shirt? Down here? <laughs> oh no i i uh i bought this when i because when i was going to have on or when i had on charlie duke the apollo oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah but it arrived late in the mail so i didn't have it so now i just got a nasa shirt what's well, an awesome shirt but yeah i don't you know and now that it's kind of even if this podcast kind of quote unquote made it and i made a lot of money i don't know if i'd have people in studio i've kind of grown to like this for what it is and well, if you're successful doing it, why change? Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, it works fix it. yeah, I like that. I like that you don't have to leave your home because you are going to be the most comfortable you can be when you're in your own. Like a lot of people are sitting there with their dog, like their kids will run in. Like it's, I like that. It's real. It's I don't know. I think a studio almost it starts to get a little too produced. And my fear is for it to become like television, where it's like welcome back, and we got you know sponsored by the Ford, and I'm like oh kill me now so but we're going on we're going on two hours so let's wrap this one up and um see you tomorrow you're coming back tomorrow yeah and we're doing um we're doing tomorrow one o'clock or two o'clock what do you want to do two o'clock your time three o'clock my time Sounds because good. I, I don't want to say two o'clock and then text you at three in the morning and be like, can we do three? So that's just, <laughs> I just, no, whatever works for you. I said, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty loose. Here, yeah. So. And this is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, this one, so this will, this was a two hour podcast. So this will take a little longer to up to edit and to upload. So, I mean, this well, one, the last half hour, you can just cut off. We didn't talk about that. No, no, I upload all of it. It's just, it's, it's, you know, if you're listening to it and you get bored of it, you can just close out. I like to put it all up. It's to, sorry to answer your question. Editing, I do edit out. I give all the guests. I have zero questions asked, like zero tolerance on my part. If they want something edited out, I will edit it out. I'm not going to be here and be like, I really hope she, I want you to leave that in. If someone says, "Hey, I mentioned a friend's name, a family member's name," you know, whatever. Or I said maybe I said something political, and I don't, I can't do that because of my job. I'll edit that out. And I've had people complain, be like, why is there a, you know, five minutes missing in the middle of it? And I say, shut up. That's why I don't care. It's, that's my guarantee to guess. It's not live. And to me, it, it makes it a little more comfortable for them 
that they know they can sit on here and, you know, maybe you have a beer and you loosen up and you say something stupid and you're like, can you edit that out? And I'm like, I sure can. So, yeah, that's how I do it. And I, I also tell all my guests, no questions asked. If at any point in the future you want me to take it down, I'll take it down. I personally don't want to, but I'll take it down if for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, like I said, uh, well, well, uh, uh, do they know who I am? I guess I said who I was at the first, but somebody wanted to contact me, so they, they'd have to contact you first, or you you put that information at the end of the... No, I don't... You know, I've never actually thought about that. No, I don't put in contact information more so out of just, like, respect for the guest, but, I mean, I guess I could start doing... I probably have to ask guests. I guess I kind of lean towards the side of I respect their anonymity, and... But yeah, I guess anyone listening, if you, you know, you want his contact information, comment. I guess, yeah, people have said that, like, you know, how would I reach this person? And I might send them their website or something. Yeah. Well, what reason I ask, there's occasionally I'll see somebody on, you know, a movie or a documentary or something. I Somebody I know when I lost track of them years ago. Yeah. I, I did that recently. Uh watching a documentary on the Vietnam the documentary when it came out. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah. Oh, I thought he was dead. Yeah. <laughs> Here he is. He's still doing this stuff. Yeah. I was able to get a hold of him. Yeah. And, uh, there's another, uh, one of my long lost stories. I don't know if you have got time to get I get to all the time in the world. I don't care. I, I, I had a, uh, rescue of an F 100 pilot that jumped out. Mm-hmm. He had a bailout. He got in, engine flame out or something he didn't get shot down but he had to bail out and i rescued him but i bought him up out of the jungle and uh i don't know we didn't think a whole lot about it we dropped him off and took off and left went on about our mission that day i've always wondered i'd like to find that guy find out if he ever got out of there he broke his leg you know mm-hmm. in the in the jump going into the jungle and i always wanted to talk to him i thought well he might see me Maybe I'll talk about the experience sometime, and then I, you know, maybe he'll find me. Yeah. He might be dead by now. I don't know. Yeah. He was an F one hundred pilot, and uh, I'd always, I've always been able to want to find him, and I've never been able to do it. So, maybe, maybe he'll, maybe he'll watch this, and if he is, he's me. Then you've got another guy you can interview. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Is that's got to be a heck of a story when you go through a bailout. You know, uh, who, that's got to be. A, there's no way that's not a near-death experience, jumping out of a moving plane. <laughs> well, that, and you know, you jump into a jungle, mm-hmm. and he was under attack once he hit the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, had to escape and evade with a broken leg, and then he had to get a hold of me. I was just happened to be the closest helicopter, and I had to get him out of the jungle, and it was a heck of a... Did he have those, like, high-vis panels? What do you mean? On the- Didn't they have those in Vietnam, like high visibility panels you'd put around like a crash site? Oh, uh, he may have had, but he was down in the jungle. We could just barely see him. And I, uh, only reason I knew where he was at is because I saw a shoot. You know, it was hanging in the tree. And, uh, you know, he didn't put out it because he had an emergency radio. He actually got a hold of him before he hit the ground. He, When he was in the air, he'd come on the air and, you know, called Mayday, Mayday. And, and uh, he was about five miles ahead of me, and we saw him bail out. And, of course, we dropped what we were doing headed over toward him. And uh, when we got there, of course, the chute was in the trees, and he was talking to me on the radio. But at the time, see, 
Well, you know, we got all these procedures, but you don't you'd hover over the parachute because if there's enemy in the area, they know exactly where he's at. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you find out where he's located, you get him marked on your map. So and then, and then you go out in orbit somewhere and you try to talk to him and find out what's the best way to rescue him. Yeah. And then you either go in yourself or you call in a Huey or a smaller aircraft, or if there's a ground unit somewhere, you can sick in there to get him. He can do that. Well, he, he punched out on his way down. He was like, I don't know, a thousand feet or so probably when he bailed out. And then he, uh, he got on the radio. He's, you know, they carry one on their survival kit on the radio. So he's, he, he called Mayday, Mayday. And I said, well, I'm, I'm inbound toward you. And he said, oh yeah, I see you. He said, well, I'm going into the trees. And so he went into the trees and then he went, dark on me for about 10 minutes and uh what happened he got hung up in the in the in the tree with the parachute and he had to cut himself loose and then he fell and broke his leg when he hit the ground or they that's what he thought anyway so anyway we went in and rescued him and that took a while and get him out of there and and, uh then we took him took him back to Dalat and dropped him off and we went back and finished our mission for the mm-hmm. day. We came back, picked him up and they had him had his leg in a splint by then. We took him over to, to Fanrang where he was from, dropped him off and we flew on home and I never contacted him. I didn't take his name. We didn't paint. I don't know. We just didn't wasn't thinking at the time. Yeah. Well, it'd be kind of fun to talk to him later, find out yeah. how he did, you know, whether he got back flying again or they sent him home or what. The guy owes me a beer, you know. <laughs> Damn right he does. That's that's the take home point of that is in conclusion yeah. he yeah. owes me a beer. And yeah, I, I gotta find him or he's gotta find me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's got debts to pay. This only is, fair, isn't it? It's only fair. And it doesn't matter if it's fifty years. There's no statutes of limitations. He owes you a beer. Heck no, heck no. We will hunt him down. <laughs> Yeah, well, that'd be a good mission for yeah, you. Is, well, I will. <laughs> you got I, research skills I don't have. You can I will go and find him. You know, I will. I've looked I, on F one hundred websites. Yeah, you know, and I've looked at that unit. I've found. I've nailed it down to the unit, but I've never been able to find anybody. You just got to keep digging. I'm sure there's. They have reunions or something. You just got to keep digging. Just got to just spend the time and tap into it and see if I can't locate him. I know you can go on a on a website. Vietnam Helicopter Pilot Association, you can identify every aircraft that was shot down, yeah. every pilot, uh, you know, pretty much they've got every every one of the 4,000 plus of us where we shot down what day, where, and who. Yeah. You know, there's tons of information out there, but I haven't found anything on F-100 units. I know where they're stationed and where they were in Vietnam, but as far as rosters, who's on them, reunions, nothing. Yeah. They're, they're not a very active group, or I haven't been able to tap in to find the resource for. It, so. Well, you, you, it's researching people. It's like there's no set way. Like you find, like, like you said, like a website, like you know, re, you know, whoever. What you do is you just start with like a, a shotgun approach. You find any, you know, at the bottom of the website, can is there a contact us link? Is there someone's running the website so you can find whoever's there? Or you make a post and you say, hey, who would I? You don't even say, do you know this person? You say, does anyone know what steps I would take to find this person? And you just, you keep asking. I mean, it really is like metal detector. You just keep asking. And, and eventually, like you do, like you hit something somewhere. And someone's like, I know where you can, yeah. and then it's, and they might not even know the person, but they might be like, I know where you should go. I mean, a case in point is Bruce Sackman, New York investigator. He has indirectly led to you. 
You guys have no relation to each other, but that's why you're on this podcast right now is because I talked to him. So it's just a weird, you just have to keep pushing. Eventually you'll find someone's old AOL account or you'll find them posting whatever. And I mean, sometimes you do all of it and you reach, you find someone and they go, yeah, I do know where he is, but he doesn't like to be contacted. Yeah. And then it's the end. The, so. wonder, the wonder of the internet, as they say, man, it's amazing. Dude, yeah. You can... we, we lost an aircraft in Vietnam, just, just disappeared on us in a bad storm one time. Never never found it, never found it. You know, you don't, you don't leave the, leave your buddy behind. But we had to, or this, we couldn't, yeah. couldn't find him. <clears throat> and uh, in 1999, little guy, fisherman, Vietnamese guy, threw his line into the river and uh, brought it back out and caught his line and he turns around and there's the Chinook crashing the side of the mountain right behind him in the jungle. Holy shit. That's how they found him. And of course the long story was they recovered the aircraft and the or the remains in the aircraft and uh, were able to identify him and brought him back and I, you know, indirectly, I found out about it the, before they brought him back from Hawaii. The remains were in Hawaii through a, one of the family members' grandson called me up on the phone because my name was on the unit that his granddad had, yeah. had served in. So, so that kind of led to, led to, led to, led to, led to another guy. Yeah. Anyway, so I, and up to that time, I only knew two guys from my unit from Vietnam. We came home, we all just went about our business and kind of lost track of each other. Well, then through the wonder of the internet, we found 187 people from our unit that had served in that unit that came to the funeral. Yeah. Uh, We had it at funeral at Arlington National Cemetery in August of 2000, Uh, or 2001, I guess it was, right before 9-11. But, you know, None of that would have happened yeah. without the internet. Yeah, we wouldn't have found anybody. Yeah, so, yeah. A long story. Yeah, no, it's in, the, the people you can find. It's insane. It's insane. You can find. You can yeah. find anyone. I mean, you really can. I mean, I had on a guy that walked on the moon. Like, how the hell else would that ever happen? In what lifetime would that happen? Where you get a guy that walked on the moon? Yet here we are. Yeah. Talking <laughs> to each other. Exactly. Well. <laughs> All right. Well, we better hang it up. We'll <laughs> We've ra- well, let's, yeah. Let's wrap this one up. Um, it'll probably it won't be uploaded until like the wee hours. So, but I'll send it to you, and then I guess well, I'm talking to you tomorrow. So I'll, I'll you know we can follow up on those potential guests tomorrow, and you could yeah, you contact them, and we'll you can send them this podcast so they can see what it's like and blah blah blah. And, yeah. Okay. All right, man, Mr. Beckenauer, okay. thank you so much for coming yeah. on here, and um, well, I'll see you tomorrow. So. <laughs> I forgot. What time did you say? Two o'clock or two p.m. your time. Two p. Two p.m. your time. Three p.m. my time. Same time. Same time as today. Same time. All right. right, Very good. Thank you very much. I'll I'll see you tomorrow. My old brain, your senior moments. You know, I got to write it down. Dude, I'm 30 and I still have everything written down. I'm like, what am I doing? (laughs) So it's fine. I still have alarms, so it's good. We're good. But um, if you need to change it, okay. All right, my man. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye.